I'm still wrestling with how to get this thing going, but let me try to back us up a little bit um, and try to give you the, the macro a little bit. Yeah, would you mind turning this thing up a little bit? Uh, by the way, I mean, if that wasn't a good read, I don't know what is. Did you all enjoy that read? Absolutely. Man, that is such a, a seminal work. These guys that were, I mean, this was a work that really turned a lot of my own research. Um, I wish I could have had you read the whole book. It's phenomenal. You all just have to bear with this for the rest of the day, I guess. Um, forgot this thing's a little bit slotted here. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, what y'all just, I know you're going to talk about, we're going to do it in a minute, uh, Kevin's going to be doing a, uh, a, a review with you guys, but uh, what were your initial reactions to your readings this, this go around? I just never understood to the degree of how the Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you guys say this. I mean, this is the, I mean, this is the thesis of our spirituality here. I mean, that's what we're doing. I mean, that's what we're trying to work out, and uh, and that's what we're doing with you know Mission Abano and our Total Christ training that we're putting together for that as well. So uh, it's great to have you guys engaging this, and it really helps me. I want to hear your thoughts, honestly. I want to hear how you. I don't mean this pejoratively, but how a lay person, if you will, how does a lay theologian, if you will, ex- respond to that? Because that's that's really going to be very helpful to me. I think I, I have a difficulty sometimes trying to understand that um, transition, I guess. And even Lisa coming out, I said, well, Lisa, what would be the take-home for this for you? Because I, I know how I'm thinking about the take-home, but what would it be for you? And I think it's similar to what you just said, Peggy, as well, that, just a deeper appreciation for one, but I think too. You know, I hope that you'll you'll see the relevance of our own polity, of our own government, of our own way of doing church. You know, this idea of Moses and a type of Christ. But who are the Levites today? All right. Well, that would be the officers, and particularly you know the pastoral office, and that changes the way you think of what am I expecting from a pastoral office, and who are these heads of households? As we've done last week, remember that, and who? Where are those heads of households today? Because what's clear from the New Testament is this is not a new religion. And what's absolutely clear is that they're utilizing the same language that would have defined spirituality in the Old Testament in the New Testament. I mean, do you see that? Like, uh, I mean, is, is the word temple used in the New Testament? Lots. What about dwelling place? What about presence? What about covenant? You see, and so it's amazing to me how how quickly we can we can think of the old new covenant and lose the word that's constant. There is covenant. Even if there is a now new or I would better fulfilled covenant aspect in Christ, but there's still covenant. It's a covenantal spirituality. It's a temple spirituality. And that's really what I hope these readings are showing you. And and you're and if therefore that's true, we can't forget that when our spiritual ancestors, the apostles and the early church, when they were constructing their spirituality, they were assuming definitions, assuming the spirituality of the Old Testament. So that's why I think this was such an important read for you. But I, again, I don't want to get into the what, what I know you'll be discussing. But anybody else on that? Just any of the readings? You did that, and I think you were assigned just to go and hit some of the website articles that we had just to kind of get you in the, in the world of what we're going to talk about here. 
Any other just initial thoughts, reflections on the reading? I think some of the, just, it, 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 just a reminder that it's the constant back and forth, but it's beginning with the word. It's always initiated out of there. It's not mm. the church initiating anything mm. towards God. It's the response of That's wonderful. So glad you, 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 you get that. That's good. Yeah, we're not just here to... And that's part of what really starts the conversation today. Um, I'm going to get to it in a minute. But really, you know, part of what's, what's energizing what we're doing here is that we really are in a kind of, uh, almost in wiki fashion, a reevaluation of spirituality. I mean, there is a major... Uh, you know, coming out of modernity into whatever you want to call it, the more modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it. But, but whatever it is, there is an unsettledness. There's a realignment going on globally right now, a reevaluation of denominations. And I don't mean whether we should have a denomination or not, although there's that as well, but that was more of a modernist controversy. Today it's more neo-denominationalism. It's what should denominations, how do we draw the lines that, that, that relate to our unity. And that's that's something that's going on both formally among pastor theologians. I mean that was it was visceral in our this year's General Assembly. I think I might have shared it up in the assembly once with you, but I led a, a little event there and, and um, there were you know a good thirty or so and and uh, you know and when we started touching on these things it was just visceral that 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 the lines of demarcation, so many of those lines were informed by social, cultural, political factors. So what part of Presbyterian is a really what we call form, or the social, cultural form of Scottishism, and what part of Presbyterianism really is the elemental form of Scripture? You see that? Y'all know those languages now. See, I'm talking to people who know this stuff, right? This is cool. This is in-house talk. Forms, elements, you should know that. And so what are the elements of our spirituality? And how would we distinguish those from the forms? Um, you know, another thing that happened in modernity, which, which I'm going to allude to, and you're, you can go ahead and turn this handout, um, is this quote by Newbigin. And, and I, I think let's just go there. Well, no, let's don't. I'm getting excited too much. Let's, let's slow down for a minute. So I'm glad you enjoyed the readings, but let me just kind of remind you of where we are. So we're in a shepherd leader training, right? You know where you are. Um, we have completed sort of a part one, which is what we're describing as the nature and uh, of the church and the nature and function of the offices. Um, that's pretty much what we've been doing, part one. So you'll know what those topics were, and you can see them in the syllabus. Part two is, okay, now we're going to turn and look at our, the ministry of the church. Um, what are the ministries of the church? And particularly, we're going to want to focus in now on what are some of the big issues that any officer of the church would need to be conversant with. And so the way we're going to look at that is today is a, today's sort of a segue day, actually. And I don't know if it's going to really take as long as, as other days. We'll see. Um, I say that all the time because I'm pretty optimistic, but, you know. Um, but really, it's not intended to be as much. It, it's going to be deep a little bit, but it's not as much. But it's really meant to segue between part one and part two. Part one, because you're going to get some overlap. You're going to hear some themes that we did last year. But you're going to be moving more into what we call the five marks, from a total Christ, ascension theology, spirituality, to 
What are those five marks? But today, hopefully, you'll see where those marks came from. And that reading you have has helped you see the prophet, priest, and king very clearly. We won't emphasize that as much in my notes. Um, And then the following five weeks, we'll take one each. Gospel-centered, missional, confessional, you know, sacramental, communal. And in each of those, it, it will we'll have a brief time to just describe what does that spirituality look like, both privately but most especially, spirit, you know, ecclesially. And then we will choose. And before today's over, I'm going to get I'm going to solicit your your uh, input on this. But we're going to choose at least one or two topics that we think are hot right now. I mean, you know, what what they were with the previous group of shepherd leaders that we were training is different now. Uh, it, this has been about, when was it that, let's see, Doug and those guys went through it. Do you remember? remember that was the last one. Um, five years, six years, something like that? Eight or nine years, see? So, so what was happening in the world of Christendom and Christianity nine, ten years ago is going to be different from now. So I'm, I'm still in the process of trying to evaluate that and, and uh, ask the question, you know, what, what are the hot issues, you know? I mean, it may be issues that are just age-old. Maybe we'll really focus in on this issue of, say, baptism. But uh, a hot issue right now in our denomination is more the issue of communicate, you know, baptism to communicate membership. This whole issue of covenant children and what's going on there and some of the new discovery of sacramentalism that's then opened up questions Good questions, actually. Um, but we may look at that issue pretty heavily because you're going to have to be, if you're an elder, for instance, you're going to be governing in a manner that's opening and closing the kingdom of God into this church. You know, and how would we, what are we looking for? That might be a hot issue. Or maybe it's the issue of, uh, you know, the relationship of the church to culture. I could see that under the either the missional or the gospel-centered Idea of what 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 is it to be? What how does the church relate to culture? What are the issues here? We've done that. I know in other contexts where I've exposed, but we'll sit down and maybe. But, so be thinking even before this is out. And don't let me leave because what I'm going to do at the very end is we're going to go through those four or five. And if you have something that you think, hey, you know, this is something I think we really need to talk about. I'd like to hear about that. Okay. So that's generally where we are. Um, Reeves, would you open us in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the uh, restart of the Shepherd Leader Training. Thank you for your church, Mm. for the five marks that uh, this church takes seriously, for the discipleship training that uh, the leadership in this church offers. Pray for the protection of this leadership, for the mission on Abino and Mm. the outreach of uh, what you've set on this leadership and this church's heart to uh, reach the, the uh, parts of New England that currently don't know the good news and the good gospel. Pray that you open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. Pray that uh, you uh, teach us all something that uh, will help us be better shepherd leader training uh, or shepherd leaders within this community of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Lisa, you could be able to concentrate my coffee all over my shirt. You're probably not on it. <laughs> it's going to kill my wife to sit here and look at me with this big blob. And she probably knows she's going to have to help get out. If not, no, not help. She's going to have to get it out. So, so I apologize for that. Um, is it hot in y'all? A little yeah. even hot? Can we turn, uh, do you mind? turn it down a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely. It's 70. 
Oh my gosh. Well, then no wonder. <laughs> okay, let's get it down to two or something, right? 72. I'll take 68. 68? Do I have a 68? I'm ready. That'd be lovely. So uh, let, me, let, me, let me frame all of this into our context just briefly. Um, and this is so cursory, it's crazy. But, uh, um, you know, this question that Brian McLaren raised, uh, you may remember a couple years ago, there was a sort of emergent thing. I mean, it came and went so fast, I, it was a whiz. But, but the spirit underneath it is very alive. Um, some of the vernaculars change, some of the language changes. People don't think or talk much about emergent church and all that. But... But, there, but what was underneath it is very profound, and it's happening not just popularly, but it's also happened academically. Um, and it really is at the root. Um, it's, it's a transition, and we hear it all the time. It's become too cliche, I know, but, but there really is a fundamental reassessment of modernity. And, and by modernity, you know, um, and this assessment, by the way, that, again, I don't agree with a lot of things that Brian McLaren says, but, but, I, but he really speaks to the, the, what is, you can hear coming out of people across the traditions. Um, and, and it's just a question. Here it is. So, so what does it look like to conceive of a Christianity in another way that's not modern? Um, can you imagine what happens to the church, the whole Christian enterprise, when it has so thoroughly accommodated to modernity, so much so that it has no idea of any way uh, Christianity could exist other than a modern way? And that is a good and profound question, because modernity isn't confessional. Modernity is not, I mean, there's no uh, biblical bias for many of the worldviews that are post-enlightenment. Some of them are. So in other words, I'm not trying to say modernity is all bad or or anything like that. What I'm saying is that that when you swim in the soup of, of a cultural or philosophical culture, it eventually permeates into the populace. So what, what began in the 17th century, literally, and 18th centuries... Um, if you want to locate modernity around pre-reformational era, um, most would see denominationalism uh, or modern denominationalism, which is really reformational churches. They are. It was. Well, there's a theological redemptive historical interpretation of the Reformation, but there's also a philosophical sociological interpretation of Reformation, and, and you should know that. That's pretty universal. Um, you see books and history, histories. Uh, when I came here, you know what's the what's the social history of the Reformation? Uh, we've had several scholars in this church who were doing that. You remember uh, Darren Provost? That that was his focus. You know, looking at Bootser and and what was going on philosophically, politically, socially. Because more and more, and we're going to get on this. We understand that there is a. And you're going to. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But there's a. There's an interrelationship, there's a dialectical tension, if you will, between the social, what we might call institutional, institutions of politics, institutions of economy, institutions of, of, of academics. You know, there's, a, there's a relationship between those social realities, we call the material realities, and what you would put over here as the ideological Realities, or let's call that theology or philosophy or whatever, and you know, and it's not an it's not an either or. You know, to interpret history 
and I know I'm getting kind of into this, you know, historically, but, but it helps you understand where we are. To interpret history is not to study uh, just writings or to study theologies or to study philosophies or whatever. It's also to look at the institutions that were created and how those institutions speak back. So to give you a, 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 an odd, obvious example, if you talk to your now maybe great-grandmother or father, or maybe grandfather, I don't know, depending on how old you are, um, and you start talking, you're going to probably find that, that so much of how you talk, how fast you talk, what your sentences look like when you talk, what those sentences allow in terms of reason and what reason then becomes can, and how that's been interpreted by the digital age, by the, the computer, by the social media, by... So you talk to someone over here, you read their letters, you read, listen to them talk, who are pre whatever this age is, the, 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 the digital age, and it's and what constitutes a good argument is going to change. You know, I see it right now as a pastor. Um, I still bias a, a much more rhetorical style of preaching. That to me is is more. It contents me to see the the, the logic, the argument, and it being put out in, in a fairly cogent but but robust way. Um, I talk to the the generation that's now emerging into our church and my own kids, etc., and they're wanting a PowerPoint presentation. And I don't mean necessarily on a PowerPoint. I mean the way a PowerPoint determines the logic of your argument. The way a PowerPoint, you know, uh, frames the way you communicate and what's considered to be good communication versus bad communication. But you see, none of that has much to do with. Well, not inherently lists with some, you know, it, it really comes down to the institution of social media or the institution of, of texting or, or whatever we want to talk about. And so these are sort of the, the, so what I want you to hear is when I say the word modernity, there's two aspects to it. There's the enlightenment philosophical system of democratization, individualization, um, the reductionism, where we, we, we go went from an deductive to an inductive way of reasoning. Very profound. Where you begin from below and you work yourself up to, to the metaphysics, if you will, versus the metaphysics are, are, and that has to do with this glass ceiling that got that busted, the whole Kantian revolution, and the way in which we no longer, you know, ironically, most of the Enlightenment thinkers, early Enlightenment thinkers, were Christians trying to save Christianity. I mean, Kant would be an example of that. And, and they were trying to say, hold it now. You know, just because, assuming the Descartian revolution, just because we can't access God, you know, in a direct way, doesn't mean that there's no God. But in doing that, and I won't go through this whole issue and discerning the noumenal and the phenomenal and all this stuff, what he, what he discerned, what, he, what comes out of that is this notion that, that there may or may not be a God, but there is no direct access to his revelation. You know, that was a huge, you know, in the Cartesian Revolution, that was a huge, just absolute upside-down turn from pre-modern to modern. Um, now, all that stuff happened, look at that, we're, we're talking hundreds of years ago now. You know, what happens, what happens when you have a printing press? That's an institution. 
And how does the printing press change the way people expect to receive information? What used to be communal became very individual. You know, I have my own personal Bible. I'm not memorizing with my church anymore. I'm not receiving the Word of God in the flesh of my pastor anymore. Uh, I have my own words. And I can sit down in my closet. Now that's pretty radical when you consider that the church didn't have that for 1,500 years. That's pretty radical stuff. <laughs> and yet today we would almost assume, I mean, you're not a very good Christian if you don't read your Bible daily. Now that's something that Christians couldn't do for 1,500 years. How did they get along? You know? So you see, you see, I'm just trying to give you a sense of this is big. Really big. And it happens over... You know, these, these eras that we call pre-modern, modern, whatever, they're pretty big eras. And I think most people could agree that we are truly in a transitional moment from modern to what? Um, and that's really the question, what? You know, and you hear the words pre-modern, post-modern. And then you hear the reaction, no, post-modern, if you listen to their ideas, are just modern, more modern. Just modern with their increased, you know that. But what? But then you hear people, you hear movements going to pre-modern again, more dogmatic, you know, more whatever. And so, so what he's asking here is a good question. Any thoughts on that before I jump in? Yeah, I'm going to try to expose a little bit more. I took an executive communication course recently, and the uh, instructor was talking about some of the shift of the way he taught even 10 years ago versus now, yeah. um, to the same United Technologies executives. And uh, before, he would say, if there's detail and you're wondering whether you put it in or not, put it in. Now his instruction is, yeah. if you're not sure, leave it out. And he just talked about, you know, and it is talking in PowerPoint, but really going through bullets, you know, uh, categorizing things, speaking in concepts that people can um, mm-hmm. capture. But some of the interesting things you talk about is the adult attention span given mm-hmm. this is now in the either seconds or low minutes it's in today's society. So, um, and you know they've done studies where they videotaped uh, meetings and the amount of times that people, without even thinking about it, it's like have look, you know they look at their phone. And so there's like constant distraction. There's so many things going on, and we're used to yep. multitasking at such a rate that we're never really deep into any one thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's the and so McLaren's the question could be to your point, you could say, let's let's put concrete to what he just said. So what would it mean to critique that? If that's modern, if that's modern style communication, what would it mean? To what degree do we conform to it? And to what degree do we have to push back against it? And what how do we know the difference? When, how would we make that decision which, other than it just being the arbitrary decision of every local personal pastor or something like that? What is the principle that we would use to make that decision? That's even the bigger question. Nothing to compel, nothing to repel. Yeah, there it is. But also you'd probably get back to this elements and forms, this idea of a sacramental localism that, that where the flesh of Christ becomes the flesh of the people. But, but, you, but what would you do in the tension of that the flesh of the people, because you also have a covenantal dimension. Now, I hope you're getting all this because you've been reading. And this covenantal dimension says, but no, there are some global, universal teachings and truths that must be transmitted. And what if those truths can't be transmitted in a PowerPoint presentation? You know, And so that's exactly one of hundreds, thousands of negotiations 
that people are beginning to interact with. And they go in across all kinds, not just practices like that, but, but again, how do we define unity? What is unity? Uh, do I have to have this style of a confession and or the Westminster style? Um, do I do we need to affirm does does a denomination need to define itself by one confessional style that God, you know, hopefully contains that would be form that contains the elements true and biblical elements of Christian faith. Are there other styles? What happens if we become genuinely Eastern and Western? Where the, what happens when the Chinese church and the Japanese church and the Singapore church begins to write creeds? And how are those creeds to be implemented? And, and do we form a, a, a denomination that allows multiple forms of, of creeds that would unite us? Rather than one or another. But yet respecting... See, then I'm getting into some solutions here. We'll talk about them later, but you're getting it. You're, if you're following what I'm saying, you're beginning to get This is not even, this is huge. It's going to go well beyond our lifetime, this conversation. Um, and it's happening, and, and it's, I'm excited that we're at a point in it that we have a conversation with it. I'm, I'm, I feel just exhilarated that I actually get to be a player in this conversation. You know, and I'm sure the other people do too. So, yeah, any other thoughts? Yeah. I just have a pulmonary look at the Godward movement imposes upon the manward movement. Say that again. The God Godward movement reposes. Reposes. Yeah, or reposes upon the manward movement. And explain what you what will you get out of that? I think the idea that, you know, God is speaking mm-hmm. and so we can't um, we become less disturbed when we don't hear God speak. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing you call it mm-hmm. that. So how to how to in a sense put it in the language that people will understand, but it's I think it's so but without losing God. Exactly. I think yeah. it's very sobering. Yeah. And I think it's a real challenge. It is. Because um, God is true, but you know, you know, there's just everything yeah. is so permeating. Right. Everything. It's not that's good. And that, see, this article is going to be huge in this conversation that y'all did since you're doing that because uh, that's right. I mean, there is a God, human word, human God word direction going on. And that's the tension that we're in. The tent, the God Island conventions, and it goes right with the elements and the, uh, the once and for all static universal elements of our faith and practice over against how those elements get formed into the social cultural flesh of a local community. And they have to remember it is local. And that's going to be the, I really think it's the, one of the biggest questions that we're trying to ask in this issue right now. So thank you. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Well, look at, you know, uh, to, to show you some of the ways, this is just meant to be illustrative. So if you take McLaren's sort of question, really, after modernity what? Well, there's actually a book that Thomas Oden wrote, After Modernity What? And uh, here, here's what he says, you know, and now you can hear him posing an an- a little bit of a question, but it, it gets to the answer, something he's, one area of modernity that he's pushing back on. And he goes, oh, someone read that. Where did we get the twisted notion that orthodoxy is essentially a set of ideas rather than a living tradition of social experience? Our stereotype of orthodoxy is that of a frozen dogma rather than a warm continuity of human experience of grandmothers teaching granddaughters, of feasts and stories, of rites and dancing. Orthodoxies are never best judged merely by their doctrinal ideas, more so by their social products, the 
quality of their communities. They await being studied sociologically, not just theologically. Now, I'm going to give I'm going to give you a little test. Who can frame that quote in total Christ categories? And you can choose the categories. That's a pretty high-level conversation uh, question, I grant you. Pretty abstract. But let's just see if anybody wants to. Don't be embarrassed. Take a jab at it. It'll be fun. Let's uh, see particulars that work out in, each, in, in, in the different categories? Or? Oh, not in each one, no. Just, just give me some way to frame this question coming out of our, our spirituality. Out of our spirituality, everything we've been talking about, what we call total Christ spirituality. Um, well, yeah, what are some ways you would look at this quote and say, hmm, Teaching you to be analytical here. You see the missional in the sense that it's who you are. It's not. It's how you're living your life and interacting that those um, that orthodoxy is carried down. So the missional and clearly the communal is there, and it's the mm-hmm. body interacting together, living it out. Um, that's what carries. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I would say in the sacramental way. You understand that it's not just about what's said and what you believe, it's also about participating. Yeah. And that's what sacrament's all about. So he's raising a good question. Where's the participationist where's the temple in our in our spirituality? Temple being all the movements and rites and and you know, things of that nature that we talk about, the socialization that comes with all that. So there's a socialization aspect to orthodoxy. That honestly, for years, a good Presbyterian had probably lost any touch with that. <laughs> I mean, it's all about the doctrine. And so you're, you're, I hear two people affirming the question. Anybody want to critique it? I think that if you rely on social experience and that, that you can quickly lose the gospel center. Oh, good, good. And gospel-centered. Now, where does that derive from? We're going to look at this minute, but that's that's the covenant. That's the forensic, objective, uh, eternal word element aspects of who we are that regulates our rule of faith and practice, of which saves and preserves the true and living God, of which saves and preserves grace, which is the basis of our Christian assurance. Every bit of those doctrines, every bit of that dogma that he calls frozen sometimes is the very heart and soul of what you get your assurance from and what you get your rules of living from God from and his lordship from and what regulates our worship service so that it is God's service and not syncretism with the world worship service and so you can see you you picking up attention I'm going to go this sounds like a pendulum swing and that's exactly what we're trying to avoid here what, what exactly motivated us to start this thing years ago was this in, intuitive sense that, that we th- it, it seems like there's constantly this polarizing, politicized way of defining spirituality, and now it becomes this pendulum swing of reaction to the, whatever previous spirituality you were in. So if you were Catholic... You went woof, over here, you know. If you were over here in a community church, low, 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 low church stuff, whoop, the kids went over here. And you often see this in generations. Right now, I, I, I don't know if any of the other pastors have a quote, a, a, a percentage on your head, right off your head. If you do, tell me. But 
I remember some. I know. I know in the eighties, uh, over fifty percent of children left the denomination that they grew up in. In the eighties, I would venture to tell you. I bet it's close to the eighty percent now. I've heard seventy. I think that. Have you or you? It's pretty high. Actually, yeah. I mean, and you mix in the nuns in there too. Yeah, that's right. Where there's wanting to. Well, that, and that, I'm going to call that a denomination, as I know you would. So we have the non-denominations, as in I'm not going to affiliate with a denomination. Well, that is a denomination. No, no, the nuns, as in, have no religious, they're not, I mean, they're sort of like a they left. belief in something. You mean atheists, they've left Christianity, period. So I'm, the nuns, the, the way I define nuns is they don't affiliate with a denomination. Anything. Yeah, yeah, but I, I also mean, I, I don't know, maybe I want to say that's not non-denominational, okay. but just sort of a personal spirituality. Okay, yeah. Which I would call spirituality. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have a invite? Well, you said it's been a mini wave at Yale, and a lot of evangelicals have been there. Oh, yeah. Well, I spoke at Goatville. Um, you know, I'm preaching over there, and, and I'm with him and others. And just what was last week, two weeks ago, when uh, he comes up to me and says, Preston, every single person I know, literally, he, his whole group of friends, that grew up Protestant are now Catholic, and yet he's one of the holdouts. He's sitting there going, and I want to be Catholic, but something's not right about it to me. You see, so that's, I can't tell you how, that, that tells you the major upheaval going on here. And that your children are going through it, and they will go through it. You know, um, it's just incredibly, you know, a big deal. But it's pendulum swinging. That's what scares me. What scares me is, and, this, and, and how much of that is part of modernity to have this individuality and not to frame my self-identity communally with my, my family anymore or, my social, or the social community that I've been. How much of that is just modern more? Or how much of that is truly a reevaluation of the fact that denominations became themselves a hyper one, one mark, and it's the hunger they're looking for for total Christ. So I suspect, I'm going to be gracious, I'm going to say 50-50. I'm going to see part of that is that, that it might express more modernity, and that there's a highly individualistic way of discerning my spirituality going on that was unheard of 400 years ago. But on the other hand, I might say, but honestly, you know, uh, they've got a point. If Presbyterian meant one, maybe two marks, and they're starving for total Christ, they're hungry for a full gospel, maybe having thought they had this mark here, now I'm going to spend the season getting my mark over here, you know? And people don't think of this cognitively. It's an intuitive dating relationship going on. I think we, as outsiders, maybe outsiders of that this discussion, think of it as a pendulum swing, but I think internally they all think of it as evolution. That they're progressing yeah, yeah. past that, and that's kind of what I pick up in the Odin thing, is that, you yeah. know, we're, there's this progress to something more, you know, that, that more fitting to where we are now as, as a past. You know, I think a, a danger in talking about forms and elements is that we can think of it in terms of platonic, like, there's this concept that can fit any category, um, and you just plug it into the now and experience it in its, you know, just most base category. But as I understand it, I mean, no, there's there's some definition to it, or else you lose it Amen. altogether. And there's never a way that it's ever experienced without being in some sort of flesh. And I think right. we we, we right. sell too small the continuity between all humanity. 
in all generations at all time. And I, I, there's obviously ways to react to that and downplay the continuity, but I think we have to say, look, we're connected to people that lived in Israel. And, Good. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's part of the whole Odin quote. If you want to see the two major trajectories, covenantal and and temple going out there, to his point, um, there is is a real sense in which in any given era, the only way you're going to experience Christ is going to be by participating in it. So to his point, the only way I'm going to experience total Christ is to be and live in, in, in a total Christ church. And I remember John, when he went and planted his church down in Atlanta, that, that he, he tried to articulate it, and he realized, Preston, there's just no way they're going to get it until we just do it. And I said, that's exactly right, which means now we need to talk seriously about your pastoral ministry and about the way you structure your church. The way this church gets institute structured is doing theology. It's not just what we put on a, a teaching whiteboard. It's the very structure. You know, if you look at this church, it's, there, there's an institutional structure to it, right? You know, small groups, this, that. You know, we have, we're always going through this, you know, corporate whole versus isolated, you know, communities. And there's an amazing structure that has a deep philosophical tension to it. And pastors and elders and leaders have to be aware of that because he's right. You can't just teach five marks. You have to do it. And then you learn it. But you also have to teach it, because if not, you have no regulative aspects to it. So I think that's a good point. I, I love the fact that you use the word evolution, because that really is, I think you're right. I don't think it's a biblical analysis of what's going on, but I think it's, it's a social popular analysis of, well, I'm evolving. Well, isn't that convenient? That I have this socially acceptable concept we call evolution, which I'm not fighting whether that's true or not. But there, everything's evolving, and that's a good thing. I mean, have you noticed that? If you say, well, I'm evolving, you're going to say, oh, good for you. <laughs> you know, you're evolving. Well, our spirituality is evolving. Oh, good for you. But, but, but my critique would be, is it really? Or are you really, if you have the meta-narrative that we're talking about, from a biblical point of view, are we really just reductionistic? Are we really just choosing which atom we're going to live on for a while? Because we have these five. And that's exactly the pendulum swing that I hear Thomas Oden talking about. Um, notice, notice the postmodern yawn. Um, so to try to flip and go a little quicker with this, you know. So again, what we're saying here, what's underneath this unsettledness, I think, is a boredom, a lack of contentment, a lack of filling with Christianity as as, as normal, as usual. And when I say Christianity as usual. What am I saying now in this context? I'm saying Christianity is modern. See, we're not saying Christianity is pre-modern because no one's experiencing that. We're experiencing Christianity as modern. So what is now, what you would describe as traditional Christianity, the Christianity of your parents and maybe grandparents, is a modernist Christianity. And why are we biasing that Christianity of my parents and my grandparents or us? Why would I bias that? See, that's, that's the big question here. It's like we're starting to look, look at this thing and hold it. What we call the traditional church is really the modernist church. And there are good things about it that may be biblical, that we don't want to throw away. But there are a lot of bad things about it. Is big better? You know, that's a modern. Modern was very global-oriented. You know, postmodern, you know, is reacting to that and becoming very local-oriented. We're going to have a spirituality, hopefully, that's both local and global. 
But in that kind of a notion, what, what's a good church look like? And how informed are we from a biblical spirituality? And so everything we're talking about is this yawn from modern, reductionistic, either-or minded, pendulum-swinging kind of stuff. I'll get to you in a minute. Let me just finish this point. To point to postmodern nothingism, I'm going to call it, because that's really what it is. It, it kind of says, uh, modernism sucks, we're out of here. You know, It's a nothingism. What I'm suggesting is kind of a, well, there's some aspects of modern that probably fit with the biblical pre-modern idea, but there's some things about pre-modern that probably need to... So where are we in this modern, post-modern, pre-modern thing? And obviously my point in all this is not to exasperate you and to try to figure out the moderns. What's my point? Let's go to transmodern. What What is transmodern? Anybody guess what I mean by that? It's the prayer on earth, moderns, 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 and whatever else we're going to call in the future, on earth as it is in heaven. We'll see the idea is there's a type and anti-type pattern going on in scripture. There's constantly this picture that that the that that there is a Type, if you will, or anti-type. By anti-type, you know what I mean by that? It's a term where you have on earth uh, a type of religion. Uh, what you call something that's con- con- you know, conceptualized, concrete. But there is a, and it kind of almost sounds platonic, and there's a little bit of, you know, that, that you could almost see this now, but there is a spiritual anti-type. There's a from God in heaven who is not a respecter of the moderns, kind of perspective. And where do we get that? That's what the that's what we believe is the miracle of the scripture. We believe the miracle of the scripture is it just is no respecter of cultures. It does it doesn't I mean it comes into a culture obviously and we have to interpret it from within that culture. But the ideas themselves are transcultural. So that's sort of where we're we're moving here. And what I do here and what you'll notice just to give you sort of a concrete is there's just this whole slew. You can go to your Google and just, just do the prefix re. You know, how many re-somethings there are out there right now. You know, reimagining the church, rebuilding the church, re... And you have some, you know, um, here. Um, uh, you wanted to say something, I believe? Yeah, I don't want to get too off topic, but a lot of what you were saying was just making me think of my own experience because mm-hmm. having almost pendulum swing myself. Uh, I grew up in a very non-denominational, charismatic tradition. I I think that there's also a marketing aspect Mm -hmm. to the whole pendulum thing, Mm -hmm. too, because, um, you know, in our church, when I grew up, it was always, we prided on ourselves, we don't know what's going to happen in church. It's always going to be a little bit different. And Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was it was always really the same thing even though, you know, ironically and it feels like in those churches so often it's all just an appeal to get people in it's an appeal to experience what's right now popular, yeah yeah, and and so it it all becomes a marketing ploy and how we're going to do this and how we're going to attract people and I think that people in my generation have gotten really fed up with that because that's also what happens with marketing. 
just, okay, what else can we throw at them that's going to make them want to, to buy this thing? And I understand the draw to, to higher churches because high churches very often actually don't really care about being relevant. What do you mean by high church? Um, I guess what I'm saying high church, I'm specifically talking about Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglican. So you're thinking sacramental slash high form or, yeah. or, or Anglo form. See, that's the irony. I'm, I'm, you know what I'm doing here. Why would we even why would we bias Roman culture or English culture as high? I mean, how would you feel if you're Chinese? I mean, I, I look at the Chinese culture, for instance, and I'm like, God, it's high. If you mean vivid, imaginative, fluorescent culture, you know, art, music, whatever, I think, sure. What about the Indian culture? You know, what about the Eastern? I mean, all of those have high cultures. So we want to distinguish two things in what you said. I, I love it. One is, ironically, that's one of the things I'll say to this person. Hold it. Why are you moving from an Anglo culture to Roman culture? Are those, is there something? Because how much of, of Romanism is Roman Catholic? You know, why is it biased out of a Latin system? Why is Latin a better language? You say, the Bible wasn't written in Latin. <laughs> you know? And so all of a sudden, you, you can't believe the cultural snobbery that a lot of this is representing. Just plain cultural snobbery that comes out of whatever heritage you happen to have. And of course we have the, the wars, the denominational wars. Because why? Because we're just carrying over the, the Scots against the Irish wars. <laughs> or we're carrying over the this versus that wars. And, in, and Christianity became co-opted, small-minded and co-opted by those wars. So, so on the one hand, I think you're right. I think that there's a real sense in which there is this pendulum swing from low church. When I, if you want to describe, so there's two ways to describe low and high churches. What I'm getting at. One way would be, be careful. Ask yourself when you say it, are you biasing a particular form or expression? of social cultural Christianity. And if you're doing that, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put my head in the sand and say, no, there's nothing high about Romanism over against Englishism, over against you know. But if you're gonna say to me, what I think about high church is what I say here, what we're saying here, which is, no, I mean the church that really does believe that it is by its very nature the living and real presence of Christ carefully Choreographed, regulated by the covenant. So there's a high church, temple, high uh, covenant, or, or regulative, print, you know, elemental aspects, form aspects. So that's the point I think you're making, and that's good. Hmm? Okay, we're going to move on. You're one more. Uh, my cousin actually grew up PCA and is now Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, there you go. And his thing, you know, this postmodern yawn. For him, it's an appeal to not being reactionist against anything because he feels like the Orthodox Church never had a reformation. It went all the way goes all the way back uninterrupted, whereas so just century. Roman Catholicism has, <laughs> has its obvious corruptions historically documented, and then you know Reformation is a reactionism to right. that corruption, and so right. so his is like, yeah, let's throw out all this modern because, right. you know, as you said, the Reformation came out of kind of the modern mm-hmm. uh, time. And, uh, and let's go back to medieval. 
Yeah. That's what we need to call. Call the call the bluff. It's medieval, okay, or a little bit of a modernist medieval. But that's right, and that's exactly what we're doing. What we're going to say is come back and say, Look, I got I got your yawn. So let's affirm the yawn. It, it is modernity is becoming very boring. It is inherently reductionistic. That's what modernity does. It's inherently trying. You, you came in, uh, your whole epistemology is to reduce something to that which is indisputable, which then begins with yourself. I'm indisputable. So therefore, I am. And now I can go from there to what I can know and what I can see. I haven't seen a miracle. Therefore, it's not. I haven't seen a blunt. I haven't felt that. It's not. That's modernity. Okay? And so in one aspect of modernity, along with some other things, the individuals that comes with that and everything else. So we need to call the bluff. We need to say, look, I got you. I, on the one hand, I'm, tr- I'm really sympathetic with your dissatisfaction with the PCA, modernist church aspects of the PCA. I mean, we need to start talking like that. I'm not afraid to do that because I'm not loyal to the PCA in a way that's beyond, that, that exceeds my loyalty to obviously scripture and, our, and even the tradition, the reformational tradition that the PCA is of one part of that. Now I love the PCA, I'm here, but the point is, is you know, there's no perfect denomination. And so, yeah, I think we could have emphasized that. And I, and I did with this fellow sitting up there. We had a nice 30 minute conversation. I said, you know what? First of all, I'll just tell you, I, I mean, he, the reason is he heard that sermon I did two weeks ago on Total Christ, and he was just totally like, <laughs> I've been waiting for this sermon for four years. You know, this is what my stroke, this really put a, a definition on his journey, he said. And I said, well, good. So you hear that we're sympathetic to that journey, that we know that there needs to be a reevaluation. And we're with you on that. But now, are you really, and that's the point I made, are you really just going to go back to a previous culture? <laughs> you know, let's, let's go back to the transcendent. Let's go back to the transcultural context of heaven to earth. And the word from heaven to earth is what we're looking for. The the breaking in of God. And we believe, contra cot, there is a permeable ceiling, if you will. There there is a, a supernatural, that's why I call it supernatural, means by which we have access to God's voice, to God's word. And this is so basic to what we are, isn't it? But you see where it's coming back. Let me look at this last quote, and then um, and then we're going to just kind of I'm going to tell you what's in the handout. This handout functions like many of the other handouts I've given you. I don't expect us to fu- to literally do it all. It's I'm going to tell you what's there, and then you can go back and read it for yourself. Um, so neo-denominational unsettlements. Now I think this is this is a quote that I came upon about maybe eight years ago. Or a book, I should say. Uh, y'all know the foolishness of the Greeks, maybe the gospel of Western culture by uh, Leslie Newbig and wonderful apologetics sort of book. Um, but this this is a this articulates something that Leslie Newbigin articulates in almost all of his writings. What really gets at one of the major elements of what we call missional ecclesiology. And what he means by that in missional ecclesiology is how do we understand the church that by its very nature is missional. So don't, you've heard me say this a hundred times in this church, but I want to say it again. Missional ecclesiology is not synonymous with, although it's related to, the church that does missions or the church that has a big evangelistic program. That's not what we mean when we say missional ecclesiology, though it includes that. Missional ecclesiology, the way that it's been codified and, the, and Newbigin's a big, the, sort of the big father of it, is 
It's the church that is defined by its very nature as missional. And why is it missional? Somebody tell me. By its very nature. What is it? What is the church at the end of the day? Where did you get the gospel? Where you get the gospel? So the church is the guardian of the truth, if you will? No, just get it. Participate. Good. It's the presence of Christ. It's really simple. It's the presence of Christ. I am with you. Um, it is the presence of Christ. So, was Christ missional? Well, according to John twenty twenty one, as the Father sent me, there's that sent mission word, so I send you, the church. How could he get away with that? How are we in any way like the Father sending us? I mean, even when I was a young Christian before I even knew anything about this, I can remember, I really can't remember looking at that going, that's not fair. <laughs> I mean, I'm not Jesus Christ. I mean, this ain't fair. I mean, there's no way. And this greater things that we were going to do in chapter 14 that preceded chapter 20? What? That's stupid. I mean, I really, my, my dumb, uneducated Christian mind that hadn't been growing up in Christendom and gotten used to hearing things and just going, okay, I looked at that and thought that was the most stupid thing I'd ever read in my life. I said, there's got to be something I don't get here because there is no way I'm doing greater things than Jesus Christ. I just went right against my sense of core values as a brand new Christian. And now I understand. Because I'm not. Christ is. Christ in, with, and through the church, carefully regulated by the covenant, is the living presence of Christ unto salvation. It is missional by its very nature. So with that kind of caveat, you look at something like this and you begin to read why for Newbegin and so many of these others they were so concerned about ecumenism. And now, you, some of you know the word ecumenism. Anybody know that word? <laughs> you know the word? And what's the first feeling you get from that word? Ecumenism. Be honest. Lame. Lame. Right. <laughs> Good. Come on. She's Com- compromise. Compromise. Ecumenism. Liberal. Ecumenism. Updated. Reduction. But it's, everything you're saying is bad. <laughs> and so when I encountered, and coming in, that was the way it was for me, all my parachurch evangelical days as well, and even churches some degree. And so I come across a quote like this, and I'm, I'm going to react. But now think about this for a minute. If you were to have a conception wherein we could envision organic unity that affirmed together a global confession, a global elemental conception of our faith and worship, but that could be expressed in many and various forms as to be localized. If you could be big-brained enough to think of such a concept, then you could make a case for ecumenism along the lines that he's going to say here and all over his writings. And he's going to make a case for it because he's going to say, because without it, our Lord Jesus Christ, remember, there's a direct relationship between the world's encounter of Jesus with their encounter of the church, according to our scripture. By your love for one another, they will know me. Remember? And so, so this is so profound. I wish this was getting tipped, just so I could listen to make sure I heard it right. But, but the point is, is that what he's trying to say is that the world's conception of Jesus is 
as a partisan, sectarian, politicized Jesus. Until the world sees Jesus that is multi-formed, multi-cultural. But mono Jesus, mono covenantal Jesus, multi-formed temple Jesus. And that's the greater things that Jesus envisioned. A unity that transcended culture, which is exactly what starts to happen in Acts, in the Pentecost. First thing, a unity that transcends culture in a manner to where Christ could be proclaimed what? And it was the, the credo, the first creed of the early church was, Jesus is Lord of all. That's what got him persecuted. Not just a Lord, a little sect over there in Jerusalem, Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. And yet the world is begging to see that reality. And that is one of the things that attracts, I think, people to the, to the Catholics. You know, the, 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 whether Eastern or, or I think they say, well, God. Now, again, my critique is I feel like what's formed them is, is a lot of Romanism. But there is a conception there that, that, and again, I don't like their conception because it's what I call imperialistic, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But that's the concept here. Um, so, uh, listen to this quote. But really the hope would be that they Well, at one very minimal level, though, you see, we have to severely reduce... The only way Bridges Hope is going to work is that we all had to agree, believe me, this was a major conversation that we had... We all had to agree that advocacy was out. This is not going to be an advocacy group. Every other union of churches in this city is an advocacy. Y'all know what I mean by advocacy. I mean advocating for political, economic sort of change as an extension of the church's pursuit of justice, peace, whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, this is what's kept us out of this uh, in many cases because we have many churches who affirm a political or macroeconomic agenda that this church can't endorse qua church. Not many members, some of the members could maybe, but not many. Maybe, I don't know, I haven't told you. And and so that was one issue we had to get out. The other issue we're going to have to wrestle with, and I think is everybody has this idyllic view of worship, and we're going to let's worship together, but at some point we're going to have to ask the question, you know, now hold on, we're going right back to some, you know, day one here of what point can we worship together? What point can we really affirm a creed? So what you had to do, Peggy, is we had to minimize not only our creed. If you look at it, and I wrote the whole thing. If you look at the creed, we had to go right back to the ecumenical creeds and go just about that. That's about as far as we could go. I inserted in there a little high view of the church and a couple other things, but basically that's what we did. And then the other thing we had to do is we had to you know, limit ourselves, at least now, and y'all can pray for us. I had a massive meeting this week with, with a subcommittee that I'm chairing on trying to develop now um, a, an organization kind of thing. We had we had some other things, and y'all can pray for that. It's a good group of people. We're really making some great progress. But we had to minimize what we do to mercy. I said, let's, let's all agree together that... We can, we can paint houses together. We can build houses. We can do gardens. We can do books. We can do common grace stuff together even. We can do a lot of that stuff and the world will see. And we can all do it with an explicitly Christ-centered gospel proclaiming. That's what we all affirm together. That we're going to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is our way, hope, and truth of salvation. And faith in him is, is what we need. I mean, we all agree with that stuff. 
but we had to say, but advocacy is happening. Well, think about what's happened in the last, since uh, Bridges of Hope has come up. I mean, we walk into a Bridges of Hope meeting, I mean, we're just muddling these things. We don't, I mean, you can tell, they kind of come out in little, little and everybody's like, well, we're going there. Black, black Lives Matter. There, there are churches that we're identifying with in hope that are, that are leading the way for that. All right? Now, would we be able to do that here? I, I suspect not. Um, there are churches here, and you can get into some other issues like that. You know, but the whole issue of Ferguson, I'd love to have a genuine conversation with each of all those churches, but don't be naive. It will blow up right now until we have relationships that are deep enough to sustain that really, that kind of conversation. It would absolutely blow this thing apart, just like that, if we started to really engage the Ferguson stuff. And yet there's a naivete thinking, oh yeah, let's do it, oh love, peace. Man, it's just not that easy. And so that's, that's a good example. So look at this. It is the common observation of sociologists' religion. Stop. What did you just hear? We're now viewing religion not from a confessional point of view, but from a temple point of view. I.e., how does it get socialized? That denominationalism is the religious aspect of secularization. Now, I would stop there and say it's not the only aspect. Okay? And I know Newbigin enough to know in his other readings where he'd agree. <laughs> He's a deeply confessional guy. But he's acknowledging that there's a socialization aspect to denominationalism. There and all of us would agree. It is a form that religion takes and a culture controlled by the ideology of the Enlightenment. It is a social form in which the privatization of religion is expressed. As Thomas Luttman says, once religion is defined as a private affair, the individual may choose from the assortment of ultimate meanings as he sees fit. What's he saying? Post-enlightenment, individualism, democratization that comes with individualism, made it acceptable to go to religious smorgasbord and say, now there's other things that I think are biblical about the smorgasbord. I'm opposed to any one manifestation or form of church imperializing all other forms of church as if they are excommunicated. That's my problem with Rome and particularly Trent. That they de facto said if you can't conform to our form, not just our creed, but our form, and then there were real creedal issues that divided Luther and those guys from the Catholic Church of that day. Real creedal issues. And so denominationalism, from a confessional point of view, is a good thing, if not sad. I hope you understand that. A good thing, if not sad. It's a, it's a concession in a fallen world of grace. That not any one group of people have a corner on the truth. Therefore, while we can all acknowledge each other as being part of the church universal, we acknowledge that for the sake of conscience and the sake of true confessionalism that we have to at some point divide in order to do, express and to live our faith fully in, 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 as under the Lord. So there's something good about denominationalism. And even, even uh, Newbigin would concede that. Believe me, Newbigin was one of the great critics of WCC, World Council of Churches, because they lost the confessional Christocentric element. So you've got to know Newbigin before you judge him. But he's right, I think, in saying that there's a lot of aspects of denominationalism that really d does come out of an enlightenment, individualistic sort of a spirit. Maybe that's what your friends 
who are going Catholic are also identifying, and they may be right. And then he goes on. It follows that neither a denomination separately nor all denominations linked together in some kind of federal unity or reconciled diversity can be the agents of a missionary confrontation with our culture for the simple reason that they are themselves the outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual surrender. By the way, you might identify that, that language. This, this is not one of your really cool questions. You, you really would get an A as a CPC member if you can do this. Come on, try it. Where have you heard that language? Good. Hey, who said that? Don't be so shy. You said it. You got an A. Was it you? Did you say something? I thought you did. Steve? Yes, that's it. That's straight from the sacramental page of Westminster. That language. That's really cool. A visible, the outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual. Now, he uses the word surrender. It's interesting. In Westminster, the word is grace. To the ideology of our culture. You see what he did? Oh, this guy, sometimes you see brilliance, and unless you understand what's going on, you know. But this guy was brilliant. He just did a big one. He turned the word grace into surrender so that he could move it to culture. And so he's contrasting grace with surrender of ideology into our culture. One of the encouraging features of church life in England today is the growing number of local ecumenical projects that bring together the denominationally separated churches in one place in order to create a mere, a more coherent, incredible Christian witness to the whole human community in that place. These are scattered, fragile, and vulnerable enterprises, but they indicate the direction in which the church must go. Um, why, why local? Why is it going to have to happen locally? A little bit from what you described about the fact that um, like Mercy Project is one of the things that could bring people together. Good. We have, we have a common... We have a common world that has common needs that we can all do. Good. That's one. Anything else? Do you think that's really important about this? Well, the witness that we are to everyone that's together. Okay. So there's a participation together that, that helps form the unity. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying when others witness. Oh, yes. They would see it, yeah. They Christians actually united in Yeah. Good. You just taken out a lot of the cultural differences, so now we're actually reducing our culture significantly. So you haven't really challenged, you haven't yet gone transcultural, maybe, but at least our culture's small enough, local enough to where you know you're not dealing with some of the massive. Although that's increasingly not true with a, any modern city that's very you know multicultural. And I think the other thing that's obvious is just relationships, the communalism. I mean, the fact is, I'm getting to like these guys. And hopefully they're going to like me, and we're seeing each other, and working, and talking, and praying, and and now that that begins to build bonds, you know. And we've really needed that. We had that for many years when Josh and Peter Rogers was here. We'd meet every you know month and pray together and share personal sh- stories and all that. But we hadn't been doing it in a while, so it's kind of good to see us do it again. So, but anyway, this is sort of the so this is a lot of conversation. Um, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to, at this point now, we're going to start sort of the thesis and argument. But what I'd like to do is take a break. And um, and again, what we're going to do when I come back here is literally just, I'm going to tell you what's here. And, we're going to, and I'm going to kind of make sure you know what the big questions are. We'll have some conversation, but don't get overwhelmed. We're not going to be covering all, all the words that are in this, this, this handout. What we're going to do next is we're going to take a break. Then Kevin's going to um, get us into the book um, that I think will help.
help us to really get into this idea of, of what then we will look at in this, this, the rest of the thing, okay? Father, we do love you and we thank you for the beauty of your church and for the amazing call that you've uh, given to us to um, be part of it. We thank you for those who have thought deeply about these issues and encourage us and spur us on and uh, lead us into things that, um, that aren't, uh, aren't settled easily, um, that are worth deeper thinking, that are um, putting us beyond just the mere surface reading, because we know that um, while it is able, to, we're able to understand the gospel uh, easily in a, in a very clear term as, as a baby could. Um, we also know that the waters are, are so deep that an elephant can wade in them. And so we ask that you give us uh, eyes to to see, and ears to hear, and uh, minds to engage things that are um, are a bit deeper. And bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I can't, you know, pressing enthusiasm about this book is hard to match. Um, and it was, it was a, a good reading, and I hope you've been able to. Um, the light bulb has come on in a lot of a lot of the quotes. Um, this is my second time reading this. I read it a, a couple years ago. Um, and I have to confess, there are lots of times when I'm, I'm reading Torrance that I think, this is so far over my head that I just don't know if I can ever get it. Um, so it, it's, um, if you had that feeling, uh, you know, I, I want to encourage you that um, you know, it, it's worth slowing down and thinking about and mulling over. And I'm so happy that we're doing a community because things that are difficult to understand when I read it by myself, I love hearing um, and discussing and bringing it out. So um, I'm looking forward to this time to talk about it. And from Preston, who's drunk deeply from this, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, any input you're going to give on little corrections of what I'm missing it because uh, I don't mean that to you know give any sort of false humility. I really did, really did struggle with uh, with some of these concepts, although I could see the deep richness of it. Um, I um, I like to get into little bare bones stuff of this, and so I liked the preface, which I don't know was included in the um, the reading, but I, I want to give a little bit of the the context of it that uh, to me I think um, showed the the real practical nature of what he's saying here. Um, and so basically what I'm going to do is, is walk you through the preface, the chapter one, and then our reading. So I'm going to spend very little time on the, the two things you didn't read or you weren't required to read, and more time on chapter two, which you were required to read, and then um, open it up for um, some discussion on making some conclusions of this and then giving some end time for some practical discussions on the implications of this for you all to do in small, smaller groups, and then um, we'll come back to hear some of the answers. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, I was given, I think he said an hour, but I'm, I don't even know if I'll, I'll spend that much time on it. Um, but that was all up to you guys and how much you want to discuss. Um, so let me get into it in the, the understanding of the context of it. Did anybody actually read the preface in, the, in chapter one? Okay, so some of you read chapter one. Preface wasn't included. Um, 
But he writes in that beginning that the, the book arose out of an ecumenical conversation between Presbyterians and Anglicans. And so uh, I'm actually working off of this document called Royal Priesthood. If you didn't pick it up, it's on the back table. Um, and the key issue became the role of the priest. Because Presbyterians, although our name Presbyterian does come from the word priest, uh, the same word that gets translated priest, uh, we don't usually think of it as a priest. And, and the, the difference is was that 19th century desire in Anglicanism was to make uh, Anglicanism more acceptable to Rome. And so they, they began a more sacerdotalizing understanding of the priesthood. So rather than looking on the sheet, does anybody have a good, quick understanding of sacerdotalism? It's, it's a word that's really, I think, helpful in this discussion and, and important. So even if you have a bad definition... Um, it's bad. Okay, it's bad, but yeah, like, lots like of things are bad. It's like confusing sacraments in a, it's a sort of perversion of how we understand Okay, it's a perversion of sacraments in some sense, yeah. It's the idea that the priest is the one making all the sacrifices on our behalf instead of Christ. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think most who would um, you're, you're hitting you're hitting it there, but most of the the people who would be sacerdotal would want to say it's ultimately Christ's sacrifice, but they're yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's taking the work of Christ and saying that it's somehow accomplished additionally by a priest. Yeah. Okay. Know, or, or a church. Yeah, yeah, they're they're being they're able to dole out Christ's benefits, and in fact, you're not going to get Christ's benefits without the church or the official doling it out. And it's actually more mechanical, as some would articulate. I haven't studied sacerdotalism so much, but you know, for a lot of people, why do you go to to just the mass portion of the the or the just the the sacrament portion of the mass if you're Roman Catholic just to get the wafer? Necessary connection that they make between the, the, the blessing or and the action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to really extend it, it's almost a superstitious. Like, okay, I'm getting the grace now. Filled me up. I'm off to leave. I don't need to listen to the sermon. I don't need to actually engage this in a much deeper way. It's a mechanical distribution of the grace that's that's um, that's housed in the church. So they've got Christ's merits and they're they're giving it out. Um, so. The Anglicanism sort of got a little bit more sacerdotal in their understanding of priesthood in the in the 19th century in an effort to merge with Catholicism, and that put greater distance between the priesthood and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians. And so, when they're trying to re-engage it, this issue comes up. Youngman uh, says there took uh, took place a shift in Christology as well, where Christ. Uh, was exclusively identified now he's talking more about a medieval time here Christ was more exclusively identified with uh, majesty and power and so creatures were left without a mediator there arose a demand for human priesthood sacrifice for Christ and uh, dispense and to dispense sacramental blessing on his behalf salvation then got caught up in the priest role so you can see this the uh, uh, sort of maybe the false move when you have a magisterial view of Christ, a great view of Christ, and his his uh, view as judge, um, his role as mediator becomes harder to see, and so they need to insert the priest to be that mediator 
um, where Christ really should be the mediator. So you can see that view of priesthood was uh, becoming a non-starter in these ecumenical discussions. Similarly, the question of ordination of women became a big deal. Now, um, for him, the question became the reason why women felt um, excluded and disenfranchised and uh, alienated because of pure priesthood was because they weren't now given a chance for what? Yeah, nobody read it, so why am I even saying that? For power. Uh, it was like saying, okay, you, you don't get to have this power. Uh, but Torrance is, is saying, no, uh, power is not the issue. You're misunderstanding priesthood if you think that uh, the women's ordination is a denial of power. In fact, he wants to say that uh, priests should be self-effacing, that they should be shrinking back. And um, it's not an increase in their power, it's actually a diminution of their uh, a lessening of their, their identity so that Christ might become greater in their presence. Um, is the Holy Spirit an endowment bequeathed to the church to administer grace? Does the clergy or the church need to act or to activate that grace? Does grace act upon, or, or contrary, does grace act upon the church? And so for Torrance, he says the ordained ministry is in no sense an extension of the priestly ministry of Christ or the prolongation of his vicarious work. Um, we do not dispense Christ, or sorry, we do not displace Christ. Rather, we are displaced. We shrink so that he might become greater. Right. Does, does everybody get that generally? And then the framing of that with those two issues, I think, showing a real practical significance of this, where, where this concept of priesthood is a roadblock to ecumenical discussions, but it's also uh, this, the helps kind of just uh, help us through that category of what women's ordination would really be about because it underlying all that is a real misunderstanding of what the priesthood is. Is that clear? Okay. I guess that's my sign to move on. Uh, chapter one then, he gets into this sort of biblical perspective and this is where he does a lot with the temple and the priest and I really hope you enjoyed that. I think that was really interesting. He talks about the role of a priest to have that almost dual function of both acting with the sacrifices, but also representing God's word, that what we have called here oftentimes covenantal and temple, um, necessarily being together. Um, and he says that the priest was a liturgical extension of the once-for-all events of the Exodus and the intercession at Sinai. So it's like God acted in this one time in history and then this ongoing priestly act, that was not continuing um, this sort of static religion, but an extension and a look back to what Christ has done and a, almost a renewal of all that, that Christ has done. I mean, uh, what God has done once for all in the forming of the covenant and, uh, and the exodus, acts of redemption. The sacrificial system was, was designed, maybe the better way to, to say it here is, to bear witness to what God had done. It was never, and this is key, it was never independent of the covenant. And it was always God's action. God is always the actor, never the object of the sacrifice. Which I think if you, if you see sacrifices portrayed in common culture, and even as we think about um, 
you know, our, our obedience sometimes as sacrifice, um, that's pretty radical, right? I mean, when you see sacrifices, say, uh, just portrayed out there, what's usually going on with a priest and a sacrifice? What's, what's a, being attempted there? Remember, anybody see? Indiana Jones. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, right. What, what's being attempted by that priest in Indiana Jones? And for what? For what purpose? For his power. For his, for, for what, uh, it's weird. And what's, what's the relationship to God in that? Yeah, I mean, I know, it's where he like, grabs the guy's arm and is still beating his hand. Yeah. Yeah, what's, what's, the, what's the goal there? To pacify the, yeah. the God. It's an act on God. It's a manipulation of God in order to get what you want. And how do you do that? <laughs> Every time we're like, you know, God, I did this, this, and this. You know, this is part of the deal. Now you're supposed to bless me with the life that I have. It's, the, it's these acts upon God and this that understanding of the cult which is a shorthand for saying sacrificial system, temple system, this cult, cultist uh, idea is this act upon God. And he's like, no. In the Old Testament, that would be a move to separate the sacrificial system from the covenant and from the promises. What was always intended was the sacrificial system was a play acting, a... a um, Recap, a repetition of the action of redemption that is already promised and accomplished in the covenant, and now is sort of made visible. But it's always a, it's always connected, and it's God's the sacrifice is not appeasing God or manipulating God. It's God's grace to you. You're the recipient of it. God's the actor in it, not the recipient of it. That's radical. And I think if you read the Old Testament like that, that, that starts to free up a lot of how you think about that. And it was interesting because you talked about the, the priests over time in Israel's history start abusing that. I mean, you can see it right away with um, with uh, the golden calf. And uh, I think it's all echoing Preston's sermon from a few weeks ago. Um, but you know that that you're trying to detach all that from what what God has done. And then you see through the history of Israel what the prophets come in and do. What's the role the prophets have? Speaking for God. And yeah, so what? How does that interplay with with the with the priests? Well, it's taking giving God control back. Yeah, I mean, it's, but it also calls them out. It's also like, and that's really the priest's job. The priests just like they don't say nice, friendly things, and they're not like telling, predicting future as much as they're just saying they're, they're lawyers coming after him and saying, look, here's the law, and you broke this, this, and this, and you've really, you've gone away from the covenant. And so he, uh, Torrance, really just pulls out to you that the prophets come in to call out the error of this priesthood as they go independent. Um, and they point to this suffering servant who would do um, the actions of prophet and priest. Um, and then that point that that, um, that turn that the prophets have to say, look, it really was always intended to have this this covenant temple together, and pointing to a figure then who would embody both of those things. And where does that get embodied? 
Thank you, Jesus. Yes, excellent. I was hoping for somebody giving the Sunday school answer. Um, but this point to Jesus then being is the fulfillment of that. So if Jesus is then the fulfillment of that whole intention with both of those roles, what then role? What then uh, does the church have? What role does the church play? Um, the church, Torrance will go on to say, plays a, a new role. The priestly sacrifice is um, is a sacrifice of, of their life. It's the ministry that we have, and into which it's not manipulating God on ourselves, but presenting Christ then to the world. Um, Christ is not absent in this whole picture, but rather Christ is ascended, where He lives before the Father, making intercession. And Christ, uh, the church is then. Confession is now a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in response to Christ's sacrifice of redemption. Not in place of Christ's sacrifice or an extent of a, a continuation of Christ's sacrifice, but a response to Christ's sacrifice of thanksgiving. Um, the church is not sacrificing in place of an extension. Yes, yeah, so so. Uh, Christ as royal priest performs a sacrificial a sacrifice once for all. This act is now realized in the life of his people. Not by repetition of his sacrifice, but as we, as the people of God, dying and rising with Christ in faith and life. Um, so, you see that redemptive historical trajectory. This is the story of the Bible. And you are not... Uh, you're not heirs to that story as if you just received the book and then said, okay, I need now to carry on this story and tell people of what happened before. You're participants in the story. What role do you now play? You plural, you church. What role do you have? Over in the yeah, and not just the temple. Okay. I mean, We're also Jesus. Yeah, we're Jesus. We're Christ. I mean, this is we we have a repetition of Christ's role in some sense here, not repeating the sacrifice, but embodying Christ. And so, we're in the story. Redemptive history continues now as we um, as we represent Christ in His present ministry and His ascension. So, uh, as before, we get to chapter two. Is that are we clicking with that? Anybody? Um, have questions with that? Alright, now, now, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, one of the things that I'm talking to you is um, what you touched on, but it's kind of like when the, it's just something on page five, but uh, when the tendency or desire to divorce the liturgical acts from the living God mm. is, um, desire for Israel to worship how they wanted because it was more comfortable or it was actually worshiping and playing into the false idols. Yeah. It's very striking. Right. That's a a, a thing that like cut to where we are now. And the more comfortable is that you don't now have to confront the the divine, you know, you don't have to have that encounter with him. You can do it in some way that manipulates him without, you know, but on your own. But that, that all... But you see how that, what's the assumption under that is um, you miss the grace. You, mi- you miss the gospel. 
And it's basically saying, well, you know, the gospel doesn't really exist, or else I wouldn't be so scared of coming into his presence and trusting in his covenant. But now what we're hearing is that we too, that that visit, and how God is speaking. And now what we see in the world with the idea of evolution, God is still speaking. And what God is still speaking is what we're, what we want him to speak. It's kind of what's happening. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that that is as well another uh, example of detaching from from the covenant and who, what God has said. Um, that is never the role of the prophet. The prophet isn't to add new teachings. I mean, it's like you you completely miss the Bible if you thought the prophet is really just giving uh, something different or new. It is always, you know, really, if you get Deuteronomy, you almost never, you don't need any of the prophets. Except they clarify, they, they sort of sharpen the image of what's the, the end times hope, the eschatological hope. This gets sharpened by the prophets. But usually it's just sort of a calling out present day Israel and not conforming to God's law. Pointing out sin. And a text from Patrick? Yes. Uh, if the Lord's giving... He, he wants me to ask you... If Hi, Patrick. If, Patrick is here. If the Lord's giving to the Israelites, the bronze snake lifts up in the pole, Numbers 21, which the priest merely lifts up so that the people can respond in faith to God's merciful gift, is that an example of this, i.e., that Israelites do not concoct it to manipulate God and make granting forgiveness? Uh, not having studied that text right in front of me... Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, thank you, Patrick. Um, okay, so that all really sets the table for the chapter you were assigned, because it, it turns the question then into. Can I interrupt you? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you may have mentioned this when I wasn't paying attention, but. <laughs> Come on, boys. Let's get when you were checking checking your phone, yeah. yeah. I'm the young generation. Huh? This is my pleasure. This is my post modern yawn. Horace <laughs> uh, does an incredible job of, of uh, clarifying the incarnation in that it's not just God's action to us, but it's. Jesus Christ is doing our job also up to God. Mm-hmm. He's offering the sacrifice that we should have been offering. He's yeah. offering up the job of the human prophet and the human priest up to us. Uh, so I really appreciate the, the both arrows going both ways. Jacob's ladder and Sunday and Sunday. Yeah. Which is explicitly stated as how the church is defined in Ephesians 4. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think that he gets into that in chapter two, um, but yeah, that's that's definitely right. That there's, and that was I think tying in with the earlier quote about Peggy, the reposing um, point. Um, so you know, just to summarize, uh, chapter two uh, is the, the doctrine of the spirit has Christology for its content, and I think. Um, I think that's huge because so many times we have this idea that the spirit is something new or different and that it it is so undefined. And if you're talking about being spiritual, you're talking about no rules. And if you're talking about being in the spirit, you're saying, I'm just, you know, free to act as God moves me as, you know, just as the lightning stream comes through me and the electricity 
buzz is, then I, I act. But that's not the spirit. The spirit's always defined Christologically. And it's the spirit of Christ. Paul, Paul is willing to even call it the spirit of Christ on occasion. But um, it, it, it is also so central to understanding what the church is. Um, so that the doctrine of the spirit is really Christology applied to the church. And, um, and that really sort of summarizes this chapter. But let me, let me just open it up now to you all before we dive into what the chapter was saying. Um, what were your impressions of this chapter? Things you appreciate. I know we sort of did that a little bit earlier, but anything give you give you a chance to consult your notes. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah, that's good. Real, very helpful in making that distinction of, of identity. I feel like generally speaking, I, I got concepts of um, God, human word, and human God word, and the way that Christ flows through the apostles into the church. Mm. It's always been somewhat clunky and wooden to me, and I think this really kind of fleshed that out and made it um, it more clear. And I hope you see the intentionality and that it's so present there in Scripture. I mean, sometimes we can just, especially if you've come out of an evangelicalism that has neutered the church or just basically taken out any sort of organization and said that that's man-made um, once you go back into scripture with this, maybe God is really intentionally doing this stuff. You start seeing it all over the place. And you start seeing the body of Christ and the, the church and the organization actually being things that God actually put into his word intentionally, not, um, not man-made in some generations afterwards as the church formalizes out of uh, some human necessity. And the baptism thing, that too, is pretty... Yeah. Um, does not belong to himself, but to Christ and his body to baptize her. Mm-hmm. Christ saying, I have a baptism with which I am being baptized. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that whole new look of right. the, right. the bigness of that baptism. Yeah, yeah. and what role we, we play in that. All right, so good. Let, let me now just sort of jump in with a summary of it, and then we can talk about implications of it. Um, he has this beginning section about the apostles, which I think is helpful. He reminds us that the apostles aren't this continuing role, but this once, one-time thing. And that's exactly how Ephesians talks about it. Um, it's exactly how the scripture um, displays it. There is no second generation apostles. Yeah, there is no second foundation. There is a foundation that's, that's, um, that's there, laid out by the apostles, uh, based on Christ the cornerstone. But there's no like second foundation or second level apostle. There's no junior apostles. There are just the apostles. How did the apostles demonstrate this identity as Christology applied? The apostles are sent to represent Christ in such a way as their persons retreat into the background, and yet their message is Christ's very own word. The apostles are chosen vessels appointed to receive the revelation of Christ and to pass it through their mind and pass it on to the church. Uh, which I think is very beautiful because it both 
said it goes into your mind. It's not, it doesn't go directly into their hand as they write scripture uh, as in some sort of uh, seance or something, like a Ouija board controlling the words of scripture going down. But it goes through their minds and their personalities, and yet their personalities retreat in, the, in a way that um, brings out the fullness of Christ. Um, he has a, the four points then about the, which I think is some of what we can talk about this idea of Christ and the church and the identity and it can sound really confusing because on the one hand we might say wow, does that mean I'm Christ? or does that mean the church is Christ? or is Christ completely separate and different? You know, it, it, he, he goes so far as to say that um, the church is Christ's other self um, but what is that without getting too philosophical? And so he gives four ways in which, uh, four helpful points on the relationship between the church and the head of the, uh, and as the head and the body. Um, number one, it's a relation of being between Christ and the church. Uh, mission and being must interpenetrate. We've talked a little bit about this earlier, but you are not the church if it's not a church in mission because Christ was in mission in his very identity. Why did Christ come? He didn't come to give this perfect example of how a person should live. He didn't come to condemn. And I mean, he came to save. He came to redeem. Now, those other things are part of his identity, but fundamentally, why he's here is this message of salvation and redemption. And that's the goal of the church, too. Our goal is not to do social justice. It's not to provide jobs. It's not to do a lot of things that are even noble things. But the fundamental characteristic of the church is redemptive. Um, so it's a relation of being. Um, we have the same, you know, that identity in some, in some sense. But then Paul expressly distinguishes the church from Christ. We are not Christ. And his analogy is of marriage, which Peggy just alluded to. She is not Christ continued. The incarnation continued. She does not replace him, but makes, makes him visible, demonstrates him without being confounded with him. Do you find that helpful? I think that's really helpful. I think it's, it's, we're not in place of Christ. It's not like Christ came and now we stand in this place. Um, but we make him visible. Um, number three, the whole relation between the church and Christ is governed by the atonement. He took our place so that we might take his place before God. That substitutionary idea is fundamental in this idea of Christ and the church and the identity so that our sin is on him, his righteousness is on us, and so that's, that's who we are as the church, we're Christ's righteousness. And for um, the conformity between body and the head of the body, the church that is baptized with Christ's baptism assumes, like him, the form of a servant, working out the salvation that God works in it. Um, that should characterize our role. This is why the prosperity gospel... Uh, is so caustic to Christianity because it means that we are not like our Savior and we do not represent to our church the Savior at this at this point. We represent a sort of post-judgment glorification Savior that uh, can, would condemn and be dangerous. I mean, if we're talking prosperity gospel, it's a very dangerous message to the world. 
Imagine if Christ came um, just to be victorious and to conquer the world uh, in, in that militaristic, governmental way, demolish us all. <laughs> that's, that's not the Christ we want to portray. Taking the wealth unto himself from everybody else. No, he dies for us in a redemptive way. Um, all right, so that, that, that section, those four points, getting the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, and then he, he goes into this section, uh, again, what, what is then the ministry of the church and related to the ministry of Christ. Because he is pleased to use the church as his body and to use it in his ministry of reconciliation, we must think of the ministry of the church as correlative to the ministry of Christ. The ministry of the church is thus the function of the body appropriate to it as the body of which he is the head and the Savior. Um, As he goes on, just right after that, he says, Sometimes a distinction is drawn, especially by would-be Catholics, between certain functions of Christ regarded as primary, unique, and non-transferable, and other functions which can be transferred by his authority to his chosen representatives and through them be the extension, be extended in the continuing ministry of the church. This is a view that bypasses the resurrection and the ascension and seeks to ground the ministry of the church entirely in the historical Jesus. But it operates also with an unbiblical way of speaking. Why is that why does he say there that that bypasses the resurrection and the ascension? Yeah. I think it has to do with kind of the greater things like what we were talking about. That sort of giving of the spirit and then the, the body of Christ is acting not as Christ just where Jesus walked, but that Christ is the extended yeah. truly to all the nations throughout the world. Yeah. What, how do you view the church if you believe that Christ is dead now, other than like obvious, some of the obvious spiritual like implications of that, but but imagine if it's like okay, Christ is dead, but yeah, okay, we know he's going to come back in a thousand years per se. You know, per se. If we believe that, what are we going to think about the church? And, and be optimistic about this. Not, I mean, some of you will go to the yes, it's horrible. We'll just, you know, we don't have any hope. And, but if you were really optimistic about the church, and you said, okay, Christ is dead, hmm, he's going to come back. All right, what's my role now? What's the church to do? Fill in the gap between. Fill in the gap, which means we should do what? How do you fill in the gap? Do what he did when he was alive, and what he anticipates will do when he returns. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, yeah. Or just you know, just be pointing to what he did, or then now distribute the things he did. You're acting on his behalf. You're you're the heir of it. You 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 do Christ's stuff. Um, Torrance is going to say, which I think is biblical, that we believe in a resurrected Christ. He's alive now, and he's ascended to the Father, and the Spirit given to us now enables us to uh, be a conduit to him and his power and authority. I, uh, I, I love how he says he breathed on them, and he said, peace be on you. Right. Like, that idea of giving up the Holy Spirit yeah. absolutely hasn't left us the other day. Yeah. That, I'm going to leave that in my, my paper here. That is a huge observation right there. Because if you go back to that passage, 
It's in the context of the temple. It's yeah. in the context of it starts with the benediction. Yeah, that's the priestly so cool. benediction. Yeah. And then it's it's I mean it's absolutely amazing what's just happened in that passage. But it really that breathing is huge because if you understand the breathing concept all the way back to Genesis, it is truly a life-giving event that's been given to the church. So the church is becoming the temple in that moment by the breathing of Christ by the Spirit into the church so that it becomes the living presence of Christ. That's and unbelievable. He, and he speaks the word. And if there's any context in this chapter, he does a great job. The Spirit, the breath of God, speaks the word into the church. The peace of God is sort of the word, the event that takes place. And it empowers the word. It right. actually makes it efficacious. Right. Yeah. You see them both coming kind of together. Um, so the rather the New Testament, so he's saying that's that faulty view, which he he uh, refers to as the would-be Catholics, I like that. Um, rather, the New Testament speaks of the church as participating in the whole ministry of Christ, not dividing up what Christ is, who Christ is, but the whole ministry of Christ. The church's ministry is to be undertaken with reference not to a part, but to the whole of his ministry. The ministry of the church, and I think this is maybe, um, I put a lot of emphasis in here, a lot of bold, because I thought this was a real um, clarifying paragraph here. The ministry of the church is in no sense an extension of the ministry of Christ or a prolongation of certain of his ministerial functions. That is the view that leads to a wrong notion of the Eucharistic sacrifice as an extension of Christ's own priestly sacrifice in the Eucharist. And wrong notions about the priesthood as a prolongation of his priesthood in the ministry. And behind it lies the notion of the church as extending or prolonging the incarnation. And sometimes, as in certain Roman expositions, there even lurks the heretical idea of the incarnation of Christ in the church through the spirit regarded as the soul of the church. For me, that, that, um, that really sort of crystallized where this could go wrong in your understanding of Christ and the church in relation. Yeah, I, I think that is a great passage, but I think it's, it can be hardly misunderstood. Um, notice what he said there at the end. He's specifically talking about the extension of Christ's ministry in his incarnational ministry. Yes. I mean, yeah. we could say it outside of that verse that the church is an extension of Christ's ministry, but we'd always want to qualify as ascension ministry. Right. So I think that's really important because what all this gets down to is distinguishing the incarnational, once and for all work of Christ. And that work was twofold. One was making atonement for our sins, but also the foundation that he talked about. That biblical, regulative foundation that never changes called the work, you know, the rule of faith and practice. Those were incarnational events, you know, of Christ, wherein we are now in the ascension ministry of executing those foundational events, but not repeating them. And that's, that's really what I love about that passage. I think the Romans had the, the, the error of very subtly, Totus Christus became, we are the reincarnation of Christ every time we do the Eucharist. And, and, and that moment of mystical transformation of the elements. You literally were. I mean, you were literally, in their, in their mind, there was a reincarnation of, the, of Christ in the elements and therefore that's what made the church I hope you, this is so huge because Christ's incarnational ministry we believe is infallible so if you believe the church becomes the reincarnation extension of Christ 
The church now is infallible. And that's exactly what goes back to what he said earlier about the, the, the mask. So why do you go and just get that mask? Because it's infallible. And that's the big problem that we have with them. It's not that we think there's a real and living and life-giving presence. We just don't think it's an infallible presence. It's a mediated versus a mediate. Which means that while ordinarily it is a saving grace, but not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, because it always will go back, and, and I think he says this earlier, to the election of God and the Holy Spirit movement. So that's really huge. But I think you could read that out of context, and I think actually it could, be, it could have been read, and it would actually diminish the, the real connection of, of the church with the ascension ministry of Christ. Yeah, it's all in the context of what we just said about the denying the resurrection and the ascension. Yeah. That's the that's the flow of that page and a half. Incarnation though is both the body, right? I mean, the the, yeah. the earthly flesh. And so you believe we are the body of Christ. So how are how are we yeah. not the reincarnation of Christ? And so I I struggle when I read this because we do feel like an extension of the ministry of Christ. We do feel like the you know, when we're doing prophets, priests, and king, there's notions of priests we are that, are, right. that are the ties to the notion of the church and the prologue. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so I could read this whole thing and say, yes, that is. That's my point. You could say that if you if you don't qualify. And as long as you qualify the ascension ministry, Christ. But the incarnational ministry, remember, we're going to go. I'll, I, can you table that question? Because we're about to get into the Christology issues. And out of that comes the distinct and never separate category of Chalcedon. So I think you're going to answer that question, Reeves. It's a great question. You're right. But the key is, one is a fallible immediate, and one is an infallible, I mean an infallible immediate, one's a fallible mediated. And those are big distinctions. And it gets back to this marriage covenant, marriage metaphor, that there's a sense in which a marriage partner is one, yeah. But, we, but we recognize the distinct person. So, I mean, you, we all would pause on this maybe longer without the fact that I, the next section is this clarification here, which is saying, um, clarification, ministry and ministry of Christ. So he makes these two points. One, there's no relation and identity. In, and he, what he means by that is not the identical, this is, the, again, the marriage, it's not the same being, there's a relation in being, but it's not the same. But then point two, the church is not another ministry different from the ministry of Christ. Yeah. In and through, he says, uh, the, the ministry of the church, it is always Christ himself who is at work nourishing, sustaining, ordering, and governing his church on earth. Through his spirit, he commands and enables the church to minister in his name, to preach Christ crucified and risen, to declare the forgiveness of sins, and call all men to be reconciled to God. But it is the Lord himself who is present in the midst of his church, as the word made flesh, making and preaching of the gospel effectual as the word and power of God. So those are the clarifications he brings into that paragraph, uh, which I think sets it right. The, the flow of the relationship between the, the Christ and the church, the relation always flows descent to ascent, where the church's ministry is a reflex so that, that's when the ascent comes in. Um, descent to ascent is a reflex. It's never the reverse, ascent to descent, which he calls the Pelagian move that views the atonement as an act upon God. Um, Can I make a comment? No. Yeah. yeah. Your presence comment and Reed's question, uh, Christ himself helps me a lot. 
And also this idea of once for all versus what continues. So the re- the, another invocation of a Catholic tendency is to lose assurance of the gospel, right? Because you lose, if you lose... You're going to answer my practical questions, but yeah, go ahead. Good, I'll, I'll help it. Uh, once for all versus what continues. Yeah. So if we appreciate that the incarnation stuff is once, what he accomplished as a human on this earth is never going to be repeated, right? And so, but what continues, it's, it's how it's declared, how it's manifest, how it's going to but then, he, uh, then he closes with his mode of representation, um, and he rattles off a few points. Ministry is not a function of the people, or ministry is not their delegates. We're not the delegates of the church. Uh, ministry is not demo- uh, demo- democratically grounded and built up from the members of the church so, that, so as to represent them before God. Um, Paul never speaks of himself as being representative of the church before God and acting on on their behalf toward God and therefore responsible uh, to the church for his actions toward God on their behalf. I had that, maybe it was a little clunky as I uh, was trying to put that together, but the, the point is that because he's not representing people to God, he can actually be for the people. He can actually be a benefit um, uh, to the church for his actions uh, um, to God on their on their behalf. Ministerial representatives receive their commission or orders not from the church, but for it. Not from the church, but for it. For their commission has its sole right in the gift given by Christ and in offering the gifts given by Christ in word and sacrament. Um, okay, so that's the end of his, his chapter there. The implications, I just want to rattle off a few of these before we get to some discussion questions. Um, the first is that the church must not be independent of Christ. Um, Christ is not absent, leaving um, the church as a human institution pragmatically gathered to simply carry on a message. I mean, the point is that it didn't wasn't like the this uh, apostles just got together and said, "Okay, well, boy, Christ is gone now. You know, what's the what's the most efficient, effective way for us to gather together and continue on His ministry and message?" No, Christ is present. I think you see that absence in two extremes. You know, we think sometimes that the Catholics and the Baptists, um, and by Baptists I mean just this memorial, just remembering, but Christ really isn't present here, and that can be evangelicals, but. Um, but it's this, this typically that God not Christ is not present. I think it's both there. We, we think of the sort of the, the Baptists and evangelicals maybe, and the Catholics are so far from each other, but they really share this point in that um, the ascension, resurrection, ascension, presence of Christ um, is not there in some way. The Church mediates it in, in a false way, or, or um, it stands in the in the middle of it. Um, the church is not a replacement for Christ. The church does not have any authority or spiritual power on its own. Um, we're just Christ's pre- uh, power and presence. And the ministerial representatives is not a representative of the people. A representative is not accountable to the people, but does serve for their benefit. I think it's, um, you know, that, that has all sorts of implications that we could talk about, um, about being a representative of the people. Um, in that case, um, I think if that were the case, uh, we would be really handcuffed in what we preach a lot of times because we're worried that um, 
you know, in, in some ways, we're going to have a job, but we preach because our accountability is to God and, and the presenting God. And, yeah. I appreciate that point. Um, I, I think we probably should qualify it a tad, though. Um, there's a sense in which the priestly office of, of the office of pastor, elder, etc., the priestliness of it is that we do, we are representing people to God insofar as our prayers, insofar as our, you know, in, in incorporating the trials and sufferings and the, and the life of the people, we, we are there in some ways with that mediatorial human word, human God word activity. So there is an element that he, I think, would agree with. Right. But I think your point is well taken too, and I think it has significance in this particular training. For those of you who aspire to be leaders, um, at the end of the day, uh, I think your point is well taken that, that yeah, we're, we're not here taking a poll as we preach or teach or how we lead, etc. And I think one of the great, great tensions in ministry is finding, I mean, one way that, that we say it is that we make a distinction between unfelt and felt needs. Now, the felt needs are those sorts of needs that we bring to God in so many ways, as well as unfelt. But there's this unfelt sense, and I think that, that really gets to your point, that so much of ministry and how healthy our church will be is going to come down to how much will the pastor, elders, leaders be willing to listen to God and to bring before the people what they don't perceive they need. Yep. And and there's a lot of that that's going on. Yep. And that, to me, probably is one of the most... Uh, Greatest sources of suffering yeah. as a pastor is is that people don't appreciate what they don't know they need, yeah. and you're just kind of having to find every way you can to get it into them, even though they don't appreciate what they need. Yeah. And they're not going to tell you thank you. Probably they will tell you thank you when you know you you, you address that felt need in a sermon or a teaching or whatever. And so it, you know, and I say that not not that's just part that comes with the territory. Right. That's part of the the privilege I have. Yeah. That all that is. But I say that to you who want to be leaders. You know, I think that's a really important part. And it, this isn't a de- democratic institution where you're you're being sent by the people to do something in this a government we call the church. No, you're actually being sent and called by Christ, the chief shepherd, yep. to be his emissary in the life of the people. And as Christ did in his ministry, there were many, many, many things he taught and said that the apostles did not readily understand or or could proceed to be what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah, and I, we really had you guys in mind when I was thinking about that because just put yourselves now in a position of uh, of being in the room making some of these decisions about the church. Some of you are already there, but um, you're really going to wrestle with this tension of um, we really feel like this is the right ministry plan for this year being faithful to God and what the congregation needs and then you watch and some people turn away and not many people there and so then the other question is okay am I just foolhardy and missing you know so there's a, there's that whole debate and all of us as ministers wrestle with this are people turning away because I'm really not preaching God here and because I'm not faithful to what the real set of the need is, that I'm not applying the right, I'm not applying the gospel to the right need, or is it because there's a other tension here because of sin and um, 
you know, that, that, that works out. So I, I just really, the accountability on both, whether we judge the program because of the feet, um, you know, leaving, you know, people walking out, or because they're there and the church is growing, we have to remember the grid is always, that may help in our determining whether or not this is effective, but it's very difficult. The overall thing, though, is our accountability to God, and are we really putting the checks in to say, are we faithful in, in, uh, to Him with the, the ministry we've been given? So, so is this number three statement true in the New Covenant context? Because I guess I, I think of sort of the, uh, you know, the Adam or the, the covenantal heads of the Old Testament up to Christ being, you know, completing it. Were, minister, were ministerial representatives of the people to God, right? I mean, what, isn't that what a covenant head of Adam, Abraham, Moses, and ultimately Christ were sort of a ministerial representative of the people to God? So when we do that, as that part of it, it's always representing Christ. It's always saying, how would you do that now? Was to say, you know, Christ said you're fully redeemed and the judgment has come and you're, you know, you are, you are a son and daughter through, through his uh, federal headship as the church incorporated into that. But that's, I think that's different than the authority that we have in some ways of trying to be accountable to the people as it gets fleshed out in some context that say, okay, you know, really they're just elected officials as we think about maybe in our government to say, okay, is our senator really just trying to get the will of the people and is elected and can be kicked out or are they trying to hold to some ideal and they're put in there to, to pattern themselves after some ideal? I can follow it. I agree with what he said. I think a great analogy is in Romans where, you know, there's this sense in which we pray, and, and then that prayer is interpreted, if you will, by the Holy Spirit into the purposes of Christ and brought to the Father. So our representation as leaders is insofar as we are able, we are representing our people to God in Christ. That's key. In Christ. So imagine a scenario that people come to Christ and say, Jesus, um, man, you know, and, and whatever, I'll say something stupid that you know would be obvious. So Jesus, you know, um, I really need this Mercedes Benz, you know, or this great car or whatever it is. Um, and, and pastor, would you pray for God to get me that Mercedes? Um, I could probably say, I, I'm not sure I can do that in the college. I'm going to say something like that. I perceive that there is something in this prayer, something in this situation that fits into the plan of God's salvation for you that I will pray for. You see? And so you would and that's why we say things like in his will or whatever. But but you see what I mean? It's like there's a lot of times when you I mean what we perceive will be the solution to our lives, we all know this, right? is actually, there's a real need, there's a real issue here. It might be my identity, it might be, maybe I'm afraid for my children. God, help them to get into Harvard or Yale or whatever. I don't think I'm going to pray that. Honestly, I don't think I'm going to be your conduit to God to pray for your children to get into this specific college. Because I don't think God is going to respect your colleges. I am going to pray for, for your child with you, that, that God would enable them to attend that context of... of training and education where their personal relationship with Jesus Christ will flourish 
and where their vocational calling that God has given them that they may not even know yet will be most enabled, right? You see how that's different? So I think that's a good example of, no, Christ never let himself become the magic genie of the people's whims. Neither will we as leaders. But we do recognize that what's underneath the parents' request that my child get into ex-college is probably they're worried or they're concerned for their children. They love their kids. They want their kids to flourish. They want their kids to to find their way in life and, and have a great opportunity to serve God, all of which are good prayers that we can pray. But probably I will go short of telling God, hey man, get him into this college. Yeah. Yeah. Is any of that different because of your ordained ministry, though, instead of just like sort of priesthood of leaders? I don't know. Like sort of just sort of I would say that's true for all of us. True for, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying as a leader, but insofar as we're acting in the role of the church, whether you're an elder, WLB, whatever, uh-huh. you know, we're just, no, I think he's making a point that I'm there as the representative of Jesus Christ. I'm not, and, and even as Christ, the mystery of our sacramental union with the church is in the people. And so there's a sense in which we are mediating that, right? We're saying, I want, you know, Emily to flourish, but we always want it insofar as it's part of the redemptive purpose for Emily. And so we will pray that way. We will lead that way. We will, you know, if you come to me and, and you're wanting me as your pastor, let's say, or your elder, to give you. A, an arsenal of rationalizations for why my child's got to go to this college, I'm probably not going to be very helpful. You know, I'm probably going to say, I might be challenging the idolatry or the identity crisis that's represented in that. And say, you know, maybe we need to step back here. What, what really do we want for our children? I think we want them to be happy. I think we want them to be flourishing. I think we want them to... So let's pray for that and let's seek to help them find... And maybe this school is a good way for that to happen, but... but Maybe it's not, and we don't have an infallible word of God that tells you what college we're going to go to, so we can be and help our children to lose hope. Quite frankly, and find something deeper for them to put their hope and faith in than what you know, school they go to. So I think that's—I don't know if that helps, but I think that's—I think raises your point. Yeah. Uh, implication four: uh, the church can really speak the words of Christ and the actions of Christ, and I think this is. Um, it's just so important in, in lots of different ways, but um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll let it I'll let it come out more in the in the discussion questions. But um, I I think that's such a privilege uh, to be able to do for all of us to say we can not just sort of recall and maybe hope this is what Jesus would have said, but no, this is what Jesus says, and not only maybe Jesus would do this, but this is what Jesus does. And Jesus does this through me. And so when I love you, and when I sacrifice for you, it's not Kevin doing that. Um, you know, when you did the Murphy Week, um, shame on you if you thought that was you doing it. Or if you took credit for that. That was Jesus working through you, and that was a way for, you know, Jesus to be to be present in some of the, the ways, that, as in as far as you were doing it. Um, through that and sort of little acts of, of being able to do it. Obviously, in the declaration of the gospel, when you declare the gospel, um, you, you tie it to Christ's authority, not you. You're not a better person because 
you give the gospel to somebody and that's good news. You're not a judgmental person because you say that some people will not receive it. <laughs> it's not you, it's Christ. Um, and finally, the, um, the priesthood is not a call to personal power, rather a call to personal diminishing so that Christ may increase. Um, this goes for every member of the church, but also for the leadership. Um, that's not, it's not a power move. It's, not, it's, a, it's a being able to um, faith, be faithful to, to Christ and his power. Um, so let me read these discussion questions. I'd like you guys to spend some time at your tables. Um, yeah, go ahead. We only have 10 minutes. Okay. All right. Um, well, maybe we can do this here in the in large group. Um, so what are some practical, what, what are some of the practical problems that come up in a church when Christ is either disconnected or replaced by the church? I think we touched on some of these already. They lack a direction, right? Kind of blow by the blowing in the wind. Dead. Yeah, dead. Well, you're going to wind up with a multiplicity of the replacements. You know, it could go yeah. in almost any and lots of directions. Yeah. Because it isn't one. And you feel like you're you're this evolving into it, but you lose definition of what you you are. You don't have the feeling of Christ's presence. You don't really think that you have Christ's presence. Okay, so this uh, the subjective part of it uh, leaves you. I, I take what you're saying there as a negative uh, of of being able to search for how do I know Christ if I don't have his, if I don't have it guaranteed in His Word, then I'm left to being able to feel for it. And sinners trying to feel Christ's presence always going to get confused. Could be the burrito you ate yesterday. Could be Christ. Could be Satan. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. There would be hurt and disappointment too, right? Because if, if, um, if the church is trying to replace Christ and leadership, you know, you know we as leaders are going to fail people. We are going to mm. um, not fulfill what they're looking for. Only Christ can. So yeah. I think that's where you lead to hurt. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. And we can, we can say that with it, we are. It is always embodying Christ that is our goal, and we will we will miss that. But fundamentally, it's what it calls us. To the absence of Christ, when we start to build our own methodological idols, yeah. like what Israel did with their Baals, in the perception that God is not among them, they try to get something there. And so, in the history of the church, we're always creating our own methods of, of measures of doing worship, evangelism, etc. Because we don't trust in the, in the in the temple presence of God, and through those ordinary means of grace. So I think it's a reduction of the ordinary means of grace. Yeah, and all the practical uh, implications of that. Not it's not that you don't have an answer to evil in that case. You have a horrible answer to evil. Either God was absent, or you did something to screw it up. Because you don't have the guarantee that He was present and He's doing it redemptively. I think there would also be maybe a lack of grace for other denominations. Because if you replace Christ, then you know, your interpretation has to be kind of the only way to right. heaven or to God, or and so you have very little tolerance for other ways of mm-hmm. replacing Christ, so to speak. Yeah. You use like who's a 
of a, a missional impetus. Like, why would you want to bring more people in to meet? Your, people aren't meeting Christ. People are sort of meeting what you devise. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in a really healthy way, yeah. You could, do, you could do a negative way of doing that, yeah. All right, so let me get to the, the next question. How does uh, Christology apply uh, to ecclesiology affect the following? So that's a huge question. We don't have time for it. But you can think, just think through, how does this affect? And maybe it's some of the repeat of what we just said. How does it affect evangelism, church power, uh, pastoral needs, like giving assurance of God's forgiveness to people? I mean, we can really say you are forgiven and... Um, you know, you can you can be accepted at the table as Christ's table, not our table, um, because it's Christ's words to them. I think it's huge. Um, so I'll, I'll just leave that for you guys to think about. And then the third one: temptation is strong uh, to desire sacerdotalism, where this bottom-up movement of ministry, where God is the recipient. I don't think we. I mean, I think we know that it's wrong, and in the really obvious forms, we think it's bad. But I think we're all tempted for that. Maybe, I mean, just think about why you're tempted to sacerdotalism. Why would you be? It can be so... Yeah, I haven't failed so much. I'm not that tempted. I'm honest. I think that when you fail so much, you just get more humility. You just want to just give it up. And there's freedom in that. I think that... I think as you get older, I think... You just get humbler. I think. Well, I think on the other side, the temptation is that all I got to do is go to mass, yep. and, and it's a yeah. false sense of assurance. But it's an assurance that I can control. I can control. Right? I mean, putting myself in the mercy of Christ, it becomes very subtly. I can go to mass, therefore I can be saved. Yep. I think maybe it's a built, an appeal to magic too. I mean, yes. Like, you know, Superstition. Or Disney or Santa. Man. We have an appeal to kind of magic and, and power that's conveniently accessed. And, and that's, I mean, well, this not, I'm going to say this not bad, but I just, what I mean by that is sometimes there's a sense in which we're too secular and how we view the world. There's no spirituality in anything we do. And so, um, sometimes people who um, who believe in, in superstition, at least they believe that God's doing something to be spiritual. We're so darn secular sometimes that we never think God answers up one of our prayers, or doesn't even think He's present anytime, or you know, we're just we're so devoid of it. I can appreciate a, sacrament, a, a, a sacerdotalism that says, "Well, He's at least present there, and if I do it, He's going to bless me." Um, that He's actually in, engaged with this world when we so. We're so secularizing. The, the real question I have in this is not just that we see it being a temptation for others, but how would we counsel somebody out of this? Um, if we see it in others, uh, these, these temptations, what is really the good news we want to bring to people that would combat a, a temptation to sacerdotalism? Honestly, Kevin, I'm running into so many exhausted people. So I don't see... Maybe because it's our generation of where they're being told in so many directions, where there's suicide, where there's... I don't see that. I see exhausted... Uh, no, but, you, but the reason they're exhausted so is because they're putting, they're putting energy into the things well, that they're going to bring them life. Or maybe it's just... Or, or they're tired because they're just having to do so many things. But why are they doing those things? Well... 
because they're the sandwich generation. So they have their parents that they're taking care of them. And I mean, just life given. So I, I guess what I'm, I, I guess my point is that I'm seeing less of that. I mean, maybe they are, but what I'm seeing as far as what, we, as we reveal Christ to them, that there's a peace in Christ and there's a submission, like, so this idea that, um, just, I, I just have just seen Christ work with someone like I've been talking to for a long time, and, and we were having lunch, and Valerie was there, and things that, trying to talk to them for so long, and nothing happening, and then to have them actually start to hear, mm-hmm. um, it was about politics, and, and anyway, and I'll give an example, so it was about, you know, they're, they're going to solve everything by working it mm-hmm. politically, blah, 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 blah. And then it ended up that I was in that situation where I decided not to sue someone because of what was happening, but I was compelled by prayer to talk to the doctor, how I got to bed, how I started crying, and how this other person actually had their children in their class, and they got to see, and I said, you know, like Christ said back then, even with the lawyers, you know, don't go to the court. And they got to see the ministry of Christ in real time happen, because suing didn't come into my mind, and... So they heard something other than politics, mm-hmm. and I think this is coming out messy. But I, but I think the thing is, is that this lack, not to have a technique, but as we reveal Christ and a rest in His providence and a submission, that I don't have to work it. I don't have to work the yeah. system. I'm just going to be. You, you received the gospel, and now yeah. you're embodying it. And but I think that's, that's, yeah. But we do, but we do embody it in a regulated way. I wouldn't be. I don't think you're saying this, but be careful that there are means of grace that should regulate how we minister. We don't. We don't just do it in our own. Yeah. Holy Spirit gave me a great idea away. We we really do have a, a regulated principle coming from Scripture. We've kind of done a lot of good thinking about it in general terms, but it's really important that we now. Go back behind the argument of, say, Torrance. Back behind all the stuff we've been saying. We've been, we've, we've been speaking conceptually a lot. But what I want you to do, and this is, this is where, um, hopefully you'll find this interesting, but it's going to build conviction, I hope, and understanding, is go back and discern where all of this comes from. And we, we, you hear this phrase here a lot, that, that missional ecclesiology is... Christology applied. That's a little, or ascension Christology applied. And I want to trace that back. I want to go back to the Christological debates. Um, we're going to go back to around the 5th century, 4th, 5th century, and and we're going to look at, real briefly, very briefly, believe it or not, and, and hopefully helpfully, we're going to look at what the debates were, what was resolved, and then we're going to go from there back to the scripture and what they were wrestling with. So we're doing it deductively. We're going to go back to, here was the councils, here was the scripture, and um, and what was happening there. So that's that's sort of where we're going right now. So if you're in your little, my handout again, look at the total Christ. Uh, we're starting with that total Christ thesis. And, you know, it means a lot of things, but we, we speak of it, you know, it, certainly there's a devotional element. When we talk about being total Christ, we, there's a devotional component to that, right? That total Christ spirituality wants first to remind us that Christ alone is sufficient and the proper object of our faith and love. 
We should aspire to keep Christ first place in everything, not just sentimentally, but in method. Now, this is where we start making a transition. But in the method of reading Scripture, it's the preeminence of Christ. It's His person and work. It's His Christology and who His person is. The preeminence of Christ. And we start with His person to understand His work. Um, The focus of the Gospel. It's always examining Christ and what He has accomplished for us, right? Um, Our method of reading the Bible. The choreography of our ministry and our missional purpose. Everything. So total Christ is not a Hallmark card theme. It really isn't. It's a very significant methodological hermeneutic of how we do Christianity we, and how we read scripture and how we structure our ministry philosophy. So I hope you get the difference, okay? I know it sells in a Christian church to talk about total Christ as a hallmark theme. We're really only focusing on our devotion at best when we say it that way, which is important, and I include that. But I hope you see the bigger thing. And so if you're going to do that, now you're begging for a pretty robust understanding of Christ, Christology, understanding Christ as he is in the whole of redemptive history revealed from Genesis to Revelations, etc. But this passage in Colossians, I think, just quoted on page 2 now, is helpful. Actually, I just realized there's no page numbers. Sorry about that. Um, so the next page. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then I'm just giving you the, the, the descriptions of Christ here. The image in the, of the invisible God. All things created through him and for him. All the fullness of God. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning in order that, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think it's the beginning and the end. Um, in order that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, and so what I want to do is, is start now. We're going to pick up with the Christology. Because if our thesis is that missional ecclesiology is Christo- ascension Christology applied, it's just taking that idea and that concept and working it consistently into our doctrine of the church, that the church really is the ascension extension of Christ, then it makes sense, doesn't it? And this is exactly how the church was doing it back in the 5th century. It makes sense then that we have to... Who is Christ? How do we understand him and his function? And that will tell us how we then as a church should function. Just It's an obvious point. You know, the body of Christ, that well, what is Christ? So with that, look at this. I'm going to just tell you what's here very briefly. And, and we're going to slow down. I have a little slideshow we're going to go through. But, but basically, um, so let's, it starts with, now I'm distinguishing between Christology incarnation ministry and Christology Ascension Ministry. They're, they're, because the, while one, they're both consistent, it's not that Christ changes or is different, that's not what I mean. It's how would we understand Christology in those redemptive eras, if you will. So of course, if you go back to the 5th century, we're really dealing with... Um, but one of the major, major, major passages that, were being, that was wrestled with during the Ephesus and then Chalcedonian uh, councils were, was this phrase, John... Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt or templed of that word literally is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Um, throughout then the gospel then, John's going to go to great extremes, uh, as you know, to frame Christ um, in that introduction. That's his thesis, if you will. 
And I give you a couple of instances of that, and I won't review them. You can look at them yourself. You know, how he defines himself as the temple that's going to be destroyed and raises up in the third day. How all of his I am statements are, are spoken in the context of a temple feast, a temple context. Um, so you pick up with that very briefly. Later during the 5th century, of course, um, this gospel, John's gospel, his way of framing, and even as it takes you to that passage that Peggy, you mentioned, um, the culmination of the Great Commission in the Gospel of John is all a, a temple sort of idea. And so it's getting at this, okay, the word, the logos, the eternal covenantal headship of Christ representing or executing a covenant. That's all within this logos idea. The, the covenant executor of the logos, the word, became flesh and that transaction creates the temple. Covenant, enfleshed, embodied, if you will, in a manner that the temple becomes what it is. And that was played heavily in Christology debates. So let me just zip it through here. Um, you got this fifth century controversy. Um, you know, it, it obviously was about the relation of the divine and the human, but it was being pushed by Mariology and, and the whole idea of in what sense then is Mary the mother of God is she, or, is she, or is she not the mother of God and they, that kind of played out and all of that, I'm, going to zip, I'm not going to deal with all that stuff, but, but obviously the, the essence is the question is to what extent was Christ human and to what extent was Christ divine even as to relate Christ the divine Logos word and human flesh temple respectively um, you've got these two protagonists Bishop Nestorius of Constantinople and Bishop Cyril of Alexandria representing the East and West respectively. Um, Cyril emphasizing the unity of the two in one person, while Nestorius emphasizing their distinctiveness that he, that, that he seemed to be splitting Christ into two persons acting in concert. That was what was accused. The former um, you know, stressed two natures to preserve Christ's humanity. The later stressed one nature to preserve Christ's divinity. And yet both conceded the absolute necessity of preserving this dialectical understanding of the relationship of the human and divine in Christology. Um, so here's where we'll kind of pick up. And, um, you know, the, the obviously uh, Nestorianism or Cyrilism, you, you get these isms like you have Calvinism and Lutheranism, and you're now speaking of the way in which their teachings become a tradition. And it's important, even in this debate, to distinguish the two. Um, how Calvin influenced future theologians may or may not be consistent with Calvin. You know, and all their points, and vice versa. And I think this case, that's, that it, even church history vindicates that that was true. That it was charged with a lot of politicizing. There's obviously politics going on that's between where power is going to reside I mean, this gets down to where, where's the center of the Christendom universe? Constantinople or Rome? You know, eventually Rome, but now here Alexandria. And, and so uh, it's a pretty big issue. And the original thinkers tend to keep things in tension and, and dialectical, which means interdependent tension that gets lost in the more simple-minded followers. And that happens throughout church history. But let's focus then on the councils. Um, you had Ephesus in 431, and then again in 433. Um, you know, I'm just, you know, you see this armed with their commission to represent Pope uh, as well as himself. Cyril convened this council, and they condemned Nestorius. 
Uh, he had not waited, however, for the arrival of certain bishops from the east, particularly the Sea of Antioch, where Nestorius had lived and become bishop, etc. And so they, they, here was a kind of, of slanted political moment here, where in the absence of those who would best defend the position, they, they made a ruling, and boom, he's, he's gone. Um, but they did, rightly then, reach, you know, they... they uh, uh, so when they did reach Ephesus, they reconvened the council and, and, and condemned Cyril. So you, there was a reaction to that. So now you got two people, two bishops condemned, right? Uh, all with power struggles written all over it. Um, I'll, I'll just skip through here. Go to the Council of 433. You can read the rest of it. Um, council of Ephesus 433. And yet peace in the church was finally restored in 433 when Cyril accepted a statement. <laughs> representing a compromise with Antioch that emphasized the distinctiveness of the two natures within the one person of Christ. You've ever heard that phrase? You know? Uh, his statement was to invoke the language of John's gospel. Um, this is Nestorius. And this was the statement dissatisfied Cyril. Alright? Here it is. I did not say that this son was one person and God the word another. I said that God, the Word, was by nature one, and by temple another. Or by one son by conjunction. Now, are you listening? That's a little different. And it's also trying to keep in tow what John, how John is, is gospel is bringing through, from, from, I should say, from all of redemptive history. He's bringing these two trajectories that have consistently been manifestations of God, the Word, and manifestations of God, the Temple. One God, but but acknowledging there are these two aspects of His ministry. Now, you can get into all sorts of slippery slope problems right here. Modalism, there's all sorts of things. I'm not going to just get into that right now. So the point I'm getting, so, so basically they recognize that statement. So, um, so then they reconvene again in Chalcedon, and it took Chalcedon to finally clarify the Christological doctrine itself, as would eventually become widely accepted in the Greek, Roman, and Protestant traditions. The Chalcedon Creed reflected more of a win-win compromise between the original historian and serial positions, and codified the language distinct but never separate. The council would eventually clarify, quote, that one and the same Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, must be acknowledged in two natures. So what is the nature of Christ? Now, we immediately put in that word nature, what, if we're modernist? I'm, I'm thinking science. I'm thinking modern uh, physical science nature. That's not what they're talking about here. Uh, two natures, as in, yes, two natures, divine and human, but but there's there's something else happening here, and you'll see. Um, that one and the same Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, must be acknowledged in two natures, and now, that means human nature, and what? Divine nature. Without confusion or change, without division, there it is, dis- distinct, but never separate. Um, the distinction between the natures was never abolished by their union, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in one person. And so notice that the character proper to each person, a reference to Nestorius' commentary on John 1.14, the word, temple, nature of Christ. 
the divine associated with the word, eternal logos, and the temple being associated with the divine, I mean with the human, and the way in which that logos becomes embodied. That's really important. Because uh, um, there's, there's almost, you could say, a vocational aspect to this. You know, the word is declarative in nature, and yet living. It, it, and yet it has a living component throughout the Hereditary the, the But that word doesn't actually get received. The, the receptors of that word are human, and there's no possibility to receive, to access, to participate in that word, except that it becomes our flesh. And that's always been the case. You know, even the scripture is an incarnational event, if you think about it. You know, a pre-incarnational event. Just inscripturating God's word is putting it into flesh that we can read it and access it. And it can be proclaimed. So there's there's never been a time, you see. Um, so so stop there for a minute and um, and think about what's just just happened and and what we're going to do here. Hold it, make sure I got this right. Yeah. So, so now you ask the question, okay, there, there we are, we got the Christology solved. Now, how does this rush over into the ascension? And here's where I want to go. More than a reference to Christ's nature, John's reference to, to word and temple is, of course, also a reference to God's appointed means of grace throughout history in mediating God's presence. And to salvation, both before and after Christ's incarnation. In other words, it is the nature of Christ applied to the practice of salvation that is most relevant to Christ's ascension ministry. In other words, the word was a praxis in ministry as much as it was a divine nature. As with the temple. Are you all with me? A means of grace, if you would. Um, and so, so the, let me pick up. These twofold word, covenant, flesh, temple trajectories of redemptive history is... Christocentric then in John and uh, and is the basis of a biblical spirituality or some say philosophy of ministry of course sadly while the church has uh, tended to take a biblically defined Christology very seriously it has often lost the connection of Christology to spirituality or I could say to the ascension ministry of Christ so that's what I want to look at now where does it come there in its first person active uh, indicative use, the Greek word anabeno, as you know, it means, of course, I'm ascending. And it's interesting to see how John, and this is, this is the hermeneutic basis of total Christ, it's interesting to see how John will, will utilize this word. He only uses it twice in the gospel. Only twice. The first use is stated in a negative context. That, nope, I'm not ascending. Yet, um, and you see it there. I am not ascending, and it is a rebuke to those whose expectations were wanting him to skip over the purpose of his incarnation, which of course was to make atonement for sins and etc. Uh, and, and and the humiliation of sharing in the sins of the people and bearing the law of God and its curse to skip over that. They were all, as you know, both from all of the gospels, the people were constantly looking for this kingdom, Messiah, victory kind of a thing. They were expecting him to come in and they were wet, you know, syncretizing that into their political aspirations to rule and get rid of Rome and all of that stuff. And so here's John, amazing. You know, understanding that that hold it now, yeah, my whole gospel, the climax of John's gospel is going to be Anabana. Ascension. But to be clear, not in any way that would diminish the importance of Christ's incarnation. 
and the once and for all finality of that work that was being accomplished in that, that incarnational ministry. So here we have this idea, um, and here we have it, John 7 8. I am not going up to this feast. They want him to go up into the feast of Jerusalem, um, and there it would be. He'd be he'd be right on the donkey as they all, you know, as the king coming to conquer, and everything was gonna be cool politically. And he rebuked him and said, No, it's not my time. It's not my time to do it. Uh, next page. Again, I'm sorry for the lack of... Uh... So that leads us to his second use. And of course, y'all heard this here, I think, a lot. So I'm not going to spend much time here, but it's unbelievable how how it's there. You can go back and read it. The second use is, is now another rebuke of sorts. But the irony is, and it's, I don't think it's accidental, they're both rebukes. The first is rebuking the disciples saying, no, it's not my time you know, to, to ascend. The second is... Mary, she's now clinging to his incarnation. She's clinging to his bodily resurrection. And, and he rebukes her, you know, gently, I, I presume. Mary, no, I can't stay. So many words. This is not me just resurrecting so that we can all go and, and eat and drink together for the rest of my bodily human life. I'm in an order salutis here. I'm in an order of salvation event sequence here. And in so many words, he says to Mary, Mary, do not cling to me. I mean, that's just incredibly strikes you as you read that. I mean, of course, she's in the context of just loving on him. <laughs> you know, just, oh my God, you're back. Praise God, miracle. Oh, we're going back to the good old days. We're going back to the incarnational days. You're actually still, remember, the resurrection was still part of his incarnational ministry. Even if it's a resurrection to be there. But his resurrection and his bodily corporal presence on earth was, was still resurrection was still resurrection incarnation. And as it, as it is going to return one day as well. But, but he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending. That is, you know, as throughout the that picks up the narrative of John's gospel. And throughout the gospel, he is writing this idea. Remember how it all starts to get framed in chapter 14 and following. Um, he, it starts all the way back, though, in chapter 3, as far back as the first, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry. At the, uh, at the occasion of Christ's baptism, there is this promise that Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is huge. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's something that must happen beyond his incarnational ministry. And how does that fit in then to the later promise of the greater things that he's anticipating? So about this ascension ministry, Christ explains to his disciples that they could expect to see greater things even because I am going to the Father. Did you notice the because clause? Why can you expect greater things? Because he's ascending. Clearly, I mean, this argument is really carefully and intentionally put into this, this gospel unbelievably. And therefore, as by subsequent teaching, the greater things is anticipate John's vision of the Great Commission with respect to Christ's ascension temple presence throughout the earth in myriads of social geographical contexts and at the same time. Um, look at how he says it. We're, we're picking up with chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Now, most everybody in the evangelical world that I grew up with, at least, immediately assumes that we're talking about his bodily return at the end of the age. That's not what he's talking about. Not at all. And the church historically never interpreted it that way. Um, he's talking about, of course, what he's going to say as the kind of coming that is by means of the Holy Spirit 
in, with, and through this new temple embodiment to a people who had just lost the temple and didn't know what to do with their spirituality anymore. And that was the question driving John, most likely. I will not leave you orphan. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Now, see that? That's beginning to, that makes a little more sense. Oh. So this is not the incarnational kind of presence. It's another kind of presence. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you Now, in the day that he comes back, he is in the Father. Really? Now, we're getting real mystical here, right? And you and me and I and you. I mean, is that I will dwell with you? Is that temple language or what? And here, he is not here talking, of course, about the final uh, return, etc. Then immediately after that promise, you remember, it's in chapter here, 1423, he explains why he just said that, lest we didn't get it. I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, this word advocate can mean, you know, some people call it comforter, but it's really an emissary, someone who is me in my bodily absence. You could go that far with this word. Um, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. This all leads to the so-called priestly temple prayer, John 17. I won't, but you know, you see that it, I and you, you and me, da 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 da. There's no way to think about that unless you have some mystical. Into, and I am afraid that too many evangelicals read it, in, it out of the enlightenment of, oh yeah, Jesus is in my heart. And there's, it's a truth that we have to be born again, individually, and personal conversion. All that's true, no problem. But this is not precisely what he's talking about. And you see that because where he gonna, he's going to take it. And so I won't go there. He talks about the, the many rooms in the house. Of course, speaking of the house of God, I mean, whenever that language of house of God's house in my house, go through the Old Testament. It's constantly called, the temple is called the house of God. Um, and then, of course, I'm speeding on, so I want to get back to some of this. This all sets up John's amazing rendition of the Great Commission. Now, you know Matthew's Great Commission, and it is equally temple, by the way. I'd have to show it a little different because it assumes Matthew 16 and 18 and this on earth as it is in heaven idea of what he would then promise in chapter 28 where he says, And lo, I am with you. Well, in what sense are you with me? Go back to Matthew 18. Go back to Matthew 16. He tells you how he's going to be with us, and it's clearly temple. 16 especially is a temple uh, institution in Christ in his ascension. But then notice the way this, this Great Commission goes. It begins with the benediction. And it's the classic benediction of the temple. There's not a disciple on earth that understood Jewish history that would not say, we're in a temple right now. <laughs> in his immediate presence, we're in a temple, and he's telling us to go and be templed among them. Basically, look at what he says. There's this temple benediction, peace be with you. There's the temple commission, as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Well, how did the Father send him? The Word became flesh and temple among you. That's how the Father, that was his beginning thesis. Just as the Father sent me to be the embodiment of the covenant in temple manifestations, so I'm sending you. Power. You alluded to this earlier, I think, Kevin. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the temple being born. That's, that's the, the life of the priestlyhood, if you will. 
And then, of course, the absolution. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's John's version of... And again, I'm not saying Christ didn't say it this way. I'm just, I'm by version, I don't mean he's twisting that. I'm saying that I'm sure there's a lot of conversation going on around Matthew at 16. He's picking up this aspect of it. Matthew picked up another aspect of it. But they're saying the same thing. You know, as you bind on earth, on heaven, and as you bind on earth, you know, heaven, etc., loose on earth, is bound in heaven, etc., loose on earth. Um, that's basically the idea. And so, so what happened here is we just went from incarnational theology to ascension theology and pick back up in church history with Augustine who returns to Nestorius and that idea of the word becoming flesh two natures one person and he now takes this idea of John that he is talking about here and he says this is now what we are Presently living in terms of the ministry of Christ. And so he goes right back to this idea, and, and of course, this uh, quote by uh, Nestorius. And um, let's see, I'll pick back up here, and, and then I'll just pick up with that quote that you've heard a lot here if you've been here a while. The Word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and then add to that flesh, think Romans, uh, think uh, right now about John 20, 20 21, that area. And to that flesh is joined the church, and there is made the fullness of Christ, or the total Christ, head and body. Now what does he do? He of course has just taken John chapter 1 verse 14, which was quoted by Nestorius, and he now, with the anticipation of what Paul would teach in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. Um, and it's an amazing, you know, event that, that gives us what we call total Christ Christology. The meaning of to that flesh is joining the church is of particular significance. It would appear that Augustine's point is that the significance of the church is something more than a witness. If you mean by witness, you know, some people will use witness today in a more sacramental way, but I mean it just literally as a we're here imitating kind of thing. Um, Rather, it is also a mediated presence wherein this very flesh of the people, albeit in many cultural forms, is mystically united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, I should say, as governed by or regulated by the covenant, to be the mediatory of Christ on earth in union with Christ's ascension presence in heaven. Really, now notice this, if not also fallibly, as in no. No, that's a huge exception, and I'm going to prove to you. Many will go to Augustine and say, Augustine is the... the is the source of Catholic sacerdotalism. And I'm going to show you where I think that's just absolutely wrong. So I'll go in and mean that, but look at, what he, look at how he says it. Then let us rejoice and give thanks that we are made not only Christians, but Christ. Woo! Now, hold on. Do you understand, brothers, and apprehend the grace of God upon us? Marvel, be glad. We are made Christ, for He is the head. We are the members. The whole man is He and we. The fullness of Christ, then, is head and um, members. What is that Christ and the church? Um, you know, don't think this is uniquely... So go forward in history. Of course, Calvin's going to repeat this. Luther's going to repeat this. I love Luther's way of talking about it here. Um, 
you know, he's using it more here in a kind of a applicatory way that, that we're to offer ourselves to one another by, as, a, as a means by which Christ is being offered to the people in, in grace and one anothering. Goes right back to John's one anothering statements all over the place. Um, but, but let's get to this issue. In what sense then um, is the body of, of the, the church, the, the body, the flesh of the body of Christ on earth, in what sense is, is it Christ? Was Augustine assuming here sacerdotalism? There's a very curious uh, episode here where they were talking about the Eucharist. And of course, the Eucharist, how you define Eucharist will define the church as nature. That's what that was all about. And, um, and, and here we get it. But what would the distinct side... We, we got in some sense from Augustine that there's nothing... That the church is not separate from Christ. You get that point, right? So far. But is he distinct? And how would you see that in Augustine? And here's an example... On the distinct side of Christology applied, uh, Augustine carefully qualifies as illustrated in his comments about the meaning of Paul's warning that some had died concerning a wrongful participation in the Lord's Supper. Augustine raised the question, why then are there some that have not died who have eaten the bread improperly? If there's such an immediate sacrilegious event happening here, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, wouldn't that have happened? Even in Acts, you know? And uh, look at his answer. Why? Because they understood the visible food spiritually, they understood the visible food in a spiritual sense. I mean, I don't know how a Catholic can read this. Um, Hungered spiritually, tasted spiritually, that they might be filled spiritually. For even we at this day receive visible food, but the sacrament is one thing, the virtue of the sacrament is another. Classic line, the virtue of the sacrament. That's sign and seal distinguished right there. And he further explains, Consequently, he that dwelleth not in Christ, and in whom Christ dwelleth not, doubtless neither eateth his flesh spiritually. I put that in there, but that's what he's talking about. Nor drinketh his blood, although he may press, and this is him, although he may press the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ carnally and visibly with his teeth. Those are his language. That's meant to be a parenthesis, not a bracket. So I need to change that because that changes what you see there. Isn't that amazing? So I think a truly Augustinian view is what we describe as, I'm going to say a Calvin-Luther view because I think they're very, very close using different ways to describe it. Um, and they even, they were pines. So J.D. Kelly, one of the greatest historians of early church history, agrees with us um, and he makes that statement here. And, uh, and of course, you see that and I'm in, our, in our Westminster tradition. I mean, almost perfectly illustrated. Um, you know, the idea of the sacraments being a holy sign or witness. And then it goes on um, to describe uh, what is signified. And then as a means of grace, uh, it, it does the same thing there. Um, Let's see here, through sacraments as qualifies according. Yeah, I'm just going to let you do that, but basically that's the way our confession gets at that understanding of there is a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing signified. That is, there is the visible food, and then there's the virtue of that food that, that comes by the Holy Spirit in, in accordance with the election of God, but received by faith alone, not by just physically partaking of the Mass, let's say. And that's why he's not a sacerdotalist, and that's why we're not a sacerdotalist. Um, I'm going to, at this point, uh, want to sort of step back. But before I do, do you have any kind of just clarifying questions? Preston, I, just, I understand what you're getting at with the separation that um, 
Augustine's talking about here. But I don't understand how it applies to Paul saying some have died, because it seems like he explains the reason people aren't dying is because it is separate, and it's, therefore it's not a sacrament when they eat it because they're not in Christ. So then what was Paul referring to? Yeah, yeah. They, they seem Good to question. Um, I, I can't, I'm not sure what Augustine would say, but I could, you, it's historically been interpreted two ways. One is some have died, not all. <laughs> um, another would say spiritually died. Um, but another could say that uh, he's referring to the history of redemption, and, and the fact is that there, there was a, a death often associated with the sacrilege of the holy. Um, so, I don't know. I think that's generally how I would answer your question very quickly, but uh, uh, his point was making that, that there's a spiritual death. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Do you think it could also be related to the Adam and Eve episode where God says, if you eat this, you're going to die, and they eat yeah. it and don't apparently die? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying. But well, they, yeah, yes and no. They spiritually die, but not physically. Yeah, I, I mean that could be a way of interpreting. They know Christian. They know people who took the sacrament yeah. who aren't Christian, but then died. And we have that occasion in Acts, right. or at least seemingly something like that. It's it's hard to know for sure, but the key to me is what his theology is. That's really the point I'm making right now. Um, other thoughts. So let me try to let, let, let's step back and meditate a little bit here. If I meditate, meaning ruminate, thought. People have been wrestling. I want you to see the praxis. We think we distinguish between, say, doctrine and practice, right? Take this Christology applied to ascension ministry of Christ. We have a very high view of the church. We've been, ta- you know, you, you're reading in, in, in uh, royal priesthood. Hopefully, gave you a lot of material that thinks through that. But how do we relate all this in a practical theological way? And there's two uh, metaphors or or ways of thinking through it that I found to be very helpful that I think really gets, it really helps me as a leader to think through how how do I go from this lofty Christology, ascension Christology of totus Christus into the pragmatics of ministry? And here's the segue for me that was a real moment of aha. One is in Ledenbrook's book, The Nature of Theology. And I read it while I was studying here. And the other is Sociology of Knowledge by Peter Berger, a class I took at BU when I was up in... in, So I'm taking these two eras here, these two books, and they just amazing how God prepared me before I ever knew Christus, Codus Christus. And I think it might be helpful to you, but I'll say it kind of briefly. But but let me just kind of go right into... uh, Oh, this to Christ and redemptive history, um, that, that's a, I think it's a mistake. Um, ah, yeah, I'm going to have you, that, that actually, this is all, what I'm doing here, what, what I say uh, that two thoughtful metaphors, sociology knowledge and the nature of confessional theology, actually, I should have moved it. I had it there first, I moved it, and it's down here in a minute, you'll see it. I'm going to skip over, you see that total Christ redemptive history? What I'm going to, all that does is, and you've heard me do it before, is that's going to give you the biblical justification to, to locate in Scripture the covenantal word and the temple presence that all is fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so that's what we call a biblical theology of temple and a biblical theology of, of a covenant. And of course, any good biblical theology is going to be a Christocentric biblical theology. So I put all of that in there for you. You can go back and zip through it. And hopefully it will help you to see how 
It therefore preserves high gospel on the one end, as you'll see there, and high church on the other end. And so that's what you have right up there. And um, But what I want to do before, just to kind of give you this sort of, get into this, is go to page, I'm sorry, there's no pages, but keep flipping, it's a lot of pages back, till you get to... Uh, Part C. C, yeah. Okay, find C in there for me. C on the left hand side. B. Okay, C. There we go. Thank you. Sorry about that confusion. So this this is just really cool to me. But but this is of course just good people thinking through stuff like this. Um, and and so the, thinking of it in a theological sense, and I'm using the nature of doctrine. You know, Limbeck describes three ways that, that uh, the subjective context of culture, what he called the cultural linguistic community of faith, engages the objective reality of the text or divine revelation or word or covenant. Okay, so he's wrestling with Chris, you know Christological categories here: word and how it relates to temple. Temple, remember, being defined by social, cultural, linguistic embodiment of the covenant, the covenant being the, you know, once and for all static, eternal elements of and regulations of the temple, etc. They're interdependent. And so three ways. Um, you have one way and basically he calls it the linguistic and it's the church doctrines functioning as informative propositions or truth claims about objective realities. Um, there are certain religions then that, that vacillate into that area. That's how they think of of the word, it's just it's just these nothing but kind of things, uh, doctrines, and then he, he goes to the other extreme of church history and he talks about expre- experiential expressive doctrines viewed as non-informative and non-discursive symbols of inner feelings, attitudes, or existential orientations, and highlights the resemblances of religions to aesthetic enterprises. If you remember, uh, th- where did we hear this at the very beginning? This is Thomas Oden. Thomas Oden, if you even know his personal history, and I had the privilege of getting to know him uh, relatively well uh, at a conference, and he comes, he's been about in every tradition there is. I mean, he's basically tried them all. But he really came out of a very strong, dogmatic, evangelical, hardcore, fundamentalist context through all the way over to the liberal context, and then eventually into the Catholic context. And, um, and uh, But you hear that question that he raised in After Modernity What? Remember? He went from linguistic, what, what Lindbeck calls the linguistic idea of, of spirituality, to the experiential expressive. Now since he wrote After Modernity What? He, he again became Catholic, which is interesting. But here we have this cultural linguistic, what he's going to say is both and. There's a both and here in tension. And the both and reads, both religiously significant and valid, both of these. The emphasis is placed on those respects in which religions resemble languages together with their correlative forms of life and are thus similar to cultures. The function of church doctrine that becomes most prominent in this perspective is their use, not as subjective expressive symbols or as abstract truth claims, but as community authoritative rules of discourse, attitudes, and actions that is, as a rule of faith or a communal confession of faith. He's distinguishing 
what we would call a, a confession or what we would call a confessional expression within a local community, um, he, he's distinguishing that which is a rule of faith and practice for a particular congregation as that expresses in their vernacular and flesh and culture what should be, though, regulated by this linguistic absolute doctrine. And he's trying to say, basically, you've never once in your life met either or. So let's get off of the, 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 the straw bands here. There, there is no such thing. Do you see this? There is no such thing as an unembodied word or a un abstract word body. Um, an illustration I often use is the skeleton. You just you can't conceive of a human being that does not have an invisible skeleton. And that skeleton gives form and shape to otherwise my flesh, my meat, and my fat, and my gut, and all those other things that happen. But at least it puts form onto it. And so Limbeck's just saying, guys, we, we gotta we gotta think deeper here. Because there was all this reaction going on. Of course, this is part of an ecumenical enterprise. So much of this stuff is. And, and we are judging people for what we have called forms and confusing forms with what we call elements, what he calls linguistic. The, the linguistic, linguistic expression. And so uh, it's, it's an amazing statement. And so you'll see him further explaining himself down here. The issue is not whether there are universal norms of reasonable of, of reasonableness. So he says, I concede that. But whether these can fundamentally, in some neutral framework independent of language, be expressed. Every time you bring it to language, it's expressed in a, in a, in a vernacular. I mean, our Bible's no exception. That's why we got to learn Greek and Hebrew. I mean, i gotta read, I got to get to that. Because for whatever reason, God chose that social-cultural context to reveal Scripture. And I'm going to have to take that seriously. We're taking seriously the temple aspect of the Holy Scripture. You don't, you've never had contact with God apart from incarnation. Even as the Word is an incarnate act. You've never had that contact before. And that's what he said. This is huge to me. You know, because in effect he's saying you just don't have a covenant apart from a temple. And you just don't have a temple that's a true temple apart from a covenant. You don't have a body without the bones. And you don't have the bones without the body. Or, in Paul's language, head. There is no head apart from the body, and there is no body apart from the head. We don't have a decapitated Christ, nor do we have an incorporated Christ. We have both. Mind, if you could put it that way, and body. So that's that's sort of the, the, the nature of theology way of describing this mystery of Christology applied in ascension. Another one that I find very helpful was the sociology dimension. And, um, and I'm going to stop again and, and, and get some questions if you want. Um, where is that one here? Right there. It just starts at the bottom. The sociology. I see that, but is the next page? This Somehow my next page is not the right page. Let me see. Yeah, no. i got to find it. Somehow my page got messed up. I can't believe I didn't put things on this. Okay, there it is. I found it. Two pages got in between it. Um, so in Peter, we're talking about Peter Berger's sacred canopy, and uh, an amazing guy. Um, and uh, look what he says. Uh, he's going to talk about this dialectic. Now, don't let that big word scare you. It's just the word that there's two things in tension, and mutually interdependent tension with each other. That they are never 
Never separate, but distinct. I mean, distinct, but never separate. That's really all he's saying here. And what Peter Berger is doing is asking, how do we explain, what, how do we define socialization? That is, how humanity expresses itself in a, in a visible way. And he's just going to say basically here, and you can read the way he says it, but there are what he calls ideal causes for socialization, and there are material causes for socialization. And the two are interdependent and mutually uh, and, and, and dialectical, which means, you know, intention. Um, I have a philosophy that says this, and that philosophy trickles down and manifests itself in an institution that is built, an institution that will in turn act back upon and the way that gets built and change the philosophy. And so there's just kind of this total ongoing social circle of cause and effect going on between materialization, you know, materialization he calls it, and ideation. And um, so you see it. It is possible to show in concrete instances how religious ideas, even the very obtuse ones, led to empirically available changes in social structure. Our Constitution of the United States. But how much of our Constitution of the United States was driven by the social context of the Enlightenment, etc.? So, and yet again, it is possible to show how empirically available structural changes had effects on the level of religious consciousness and ideation. Therefore, only a dialectical understanding of these relationships avoids the distortion of the one-sidedly idealist and materialist interpretations. Um, I won't read the rest of that. You can. Uh, but to me... This is just one, two ways. I hope this hasn't been too abstract for you. If it has, I'm sorry. But it just help, helps me understand what I mean by total. By the word total. By total, I mean my spirituality, the spirituality of this church. It's not complete if I don't think deeply and theologically about the structures of this church. And you do it. When we sit together as an SLB session, whatever... And we're working out how this church will be materially, institutionally built. Don't ever think that you're doing something that's not an extension of Christ. And that is not really important. Um, Another way of thinking is media message. I could have brought that one up in terms of the whole communication, Marshall McLuhan, etc. But the idea that there's always a media that is the, the, the way in which a message gets embedded into a communicative process, etc. And, you know, the media is as important as the message. There is a message in every media. And some media is more inherently suitable to uh, certain kinds of messages. We talk, this gets out all the time. Where's Emily about aesthetics and music? You know, this is why I treat aesthetics so important. It is the mystery of total Christ that there is something going on when you walk in that room upstairs. And it is a message loud and clear. And how do we then govern that message, that media, that materialization of our spirituality to communicate our values and our theological ideations? That's what's going on when we design a room. When we put chairs up there, when we put whatever. It's all happening. When we do the people face each other. I mean, when they first came in there, you know, we had this idea of a round, a kind of a round, with, you know, where the cross is upstairs. And we were really wanting it to be that, that idea of the body, the communal body of Christ all together, where you could both see one another and see and, and involve what's going on up front, but that front would be in the midst of people. 
we set it up, and, and it just didn't have enough room. I mean, you literally would have had three rows or something, and it, it would have been very awkward, um, and it would have been very difficult to conduct anything. So we had to turn the whole room around. But if you'll notice, we made careful sure that we put the, the seats in an angle because we wanted the feeling to be that we're, we're still... Now, that was a deeply theologically held conviction that had us thinking long and hard about the spatial use of a room that we call our, our worship facility. And it makes a difference. Even if people can't articulate it, it makes a difference. So you can begin to see where all this intentionality that you hear about comes from. When you understand total Christ, everything's intentional. <laughs> because it's all. Christ is in it all. You know, how, what, what instruments do we use for what movements? You know, that's got to be an intentional thing. But it's always going to be a, a, the use of an instrument that is governed by the way the people perceive that instrument. Not by the way some abstract journal tells you that instrument. I mean, drums in one culture is very different than drums in another culture in terms of its use. Now, I want you to see something. Everything I just said, you're going to think, Preston, man, you're way off the territory, aren't you? I mean, we're getting into some real wild ideas, right? Well, you have read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, right? <laughs> I know, I'm being a little bit spoozy or whatever. Um, look at what it says. Look at what it says. I mean, it's, I mean, it doesn't say quite this language, but it's amazing how perfectly corresponding it is to what we just said. These two ideas. So on the covenant side, on the covenant side, the material, uh, the ideological side, or what he called the linguistic side, we have... The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of spirit or traditions of men. What's he talking about? The Word. The covenantal, eternal elements of our faith and practice. Right? But our confession, they, they wrestled with this issue of form and elements deeply at Westminster. It was a deep issue. They were so ahead of their time in my mind. On the temple embodied side, look what it says. Oh, my things are all messed up. Huh? Anyway, you read it while I'm looking. Scripture on the page over here. It's on the back of the page over here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Nevertheless, somebody else read it. I'm tired of reading Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Now there's an amazing statement here, because what he's saying is you've got this abstract, objective covenant that we have a responsibility to interpret with very stringent rules of interpretation, by good and necessary. And he turns right around and says two things, basically, all related to the other side. There is a subjective element to, to the Scriptures. And therefore, we are. it is required that we have the Holy Spirit enlivening us, enabling us, illuminating the Scripture to us, because it meets with a flesh that's softened and, and ready and open and born again to the Word of God. That's the first point it makes. And the second point it makes is, and you, I mean, literally, it's almost as if you read Peter Berger here. He just doesn't use the word socialization, but he talks about societies. That, hey guys, 
And you also got to put this word into society. You've got to put it into the flesh of the people. And you're going to have to use the scripture, ask yourself, what's the purpose of a confession of sin? And now how does that purpose get put into the media of the people where the people experience the purpose genuinely? As, their, as a purpose that's in their world and mind and flesh. This is, this is 101 leadership. This happens every time you do anything. And this is why it's so dangerous to come into any local church and import your other church to it, for one. This is why it's so dangerous to think that the way I'm going to sit down with someone who's confessing their sins in the context of a session, am I going to go take some worn out old vernacular and not translate it or, or, or what's the word, transcribe it into the flesh of this person, this brother or sister who's sitting in that room? You see, so yeah, we can take language, at most we can take language that might have been written 300 years ago and say, now our church 350 years ago said this, and we can read those words of absolution. But I'm telling you, if you don't make the step then of saying, let me kind of work it out, let me flesh it out for you. You know, in other words, if you want to make the historical connection that the church has always believed this, okay, there's a place for that. But you've got to explain it. Um, so when we do absolution, sometimes you'll notice that we'll read it and let it stand at that. But almost always, uh, and more and more I'm doing, doing it, we, we, we try to articulate a little bit about it. Sometimes I'll do it in a way, or we'll do it in a way that, that you know, I'll piece it out. And I'll put it in my language, our language, even if it's classic language. It's just so crucial, but I see so many errors that right here in our confession would tell you you can't do it that way. What, what were they dealing with, by the way? They were, they, were, they were wrestling with the Reformation and whether or not what we call Anglicanism had gone far enough. And there were many things about the Reformation that they would affirm with. Remember, this was an Anglican movement of Westminster. Um, and there were many things about the, the then Anglican church that they affirmed, Cranmer and all the stuff that he was doing, all this. But what they really wrestled with was this issue of forms. In circumstances, this idea that it, what, in what sense can the liturgy, can the way we put this into the life of these people, can it be written for us in another place and circulated globally? There's some things that are global about our religion that we should do. And so this is my fundamental problem. I have two fundamental problems with Anglicanism, or I'd probably be Anglican. Number one is I, I just I don't I don't believe that there's a human uh, successor. To, to Peter, and therefore I'm not looking to Constantinople, I mean I'm not looking to Chantelberry or whatever, in other words that idea I see our organic center as heaven and therefore multi-form you know, coming out, so in, in the whole console idea, so there, you know but, but I do appreciate the role of the bishop by the way I think that we need bishops actually but not in the way that Anglicans use it I don't believe they have authority, I don't believe in hierarchicalism, but I certainly believe in, in, in roles of people doing things but but the other problem I have is, is their Book of Common Prayer. As much as I love it, and as much as when I go to a foreign place, I find myself gravitating to those kind of churches if I can't find a church that really has what I call a four or five movement worship. Because at least I know the four movements are there, and I do love the language, and I'm, I'm equipped to do it, and I'm equipped in my own training to, to access it pretty readily. So it's, it's, it's close to my vernacular, I guess. But I, I, the fundamental concept of that bothers me. Yeah. Getting back to ecumenical conversations, 
that is a cheap way to get ecumenical unity is to make the the uh, forms a standard yeah. and then diminish some of the elements that make yeah, that's right. And that's exactly what Mary and um, I'm sorry, uh, Elizabeth, when when uh, you had that period in English history, uh, a lot of the uh, Anglican motivation was to get rid of the back and forth right. unite over the form and quiet down some right. of the elements and uh, the Puritans were dealing with that and how they express it really saying uh, stop imposing these forms on right. you that's not scripture. I don't need to be Scottish. And if we're in a war with Scotland, <laughs> do I really need to be taking Scottish ways of communicating and, and putting it on my congregation? That's This is classic what Paul and Peter were dealing with in the first century, wasn't it? You know, do you have to be a Jewish to become a Christian? And what part is Jewishness and what's part of i.e. the forms, the, the culture, the heritage, the family, Jew, and what part is the the transcendent Jew, the redemptive Jew? And we need to become redemptive Jews, if you mean by that a Jew defined as now the church, in succession to the Old Testament church, etc. But we certainly don't need to become Hebrews. Um, and so you had this Hebrew-Greek thing. I mean, all that was what's going on here. So you're right, Kevin. I mean, it's... it's where do we, it's locating correctly. Globalism is a good thing. And it should be focused on our creed. The, the, but, but the content of our creed, I should say. Even the creed itself, the particular creed, is a temple manifestation of the creed. So I would be all in favor of multi-form you know, union, multi-form creedal unions as long as the content of those were in place. So, for instance, I could, and that would mean you know, Heidelberg, uh, Belgic, you know, uh, even the Anglican, uh, what is it, 39, what is it, how many articles? 39. 39 articles. Um, yeah, they're all there. You know, there are a few nuances I'd have to debate on. Again, for me, the biggest issue is I don't believe in hierarchicalism. I think that's very dangerous, even as my best friend is doing it. And we talk about it, but I think it's very dangerous. But uh, at least in the long term, all that can be useful to God too. Well, that's that. If you look at that page there, I, we're almost through with the handout. I'm going to let you read the rest. Just trying to get this analysis going. I'm, again, I'm making you think deeply about it. Um, just as in Christology, Christology applied means that the covenant and the temple, though distinct, are never separated, even the inter- independent upon the other. That's the way you need to think about it. And so as you try to think about how they're distinguished, if the covenant constitutes and regulates the temple, the temple executed and participated in the covenant. You see? Or if covenant is divine law unto salvation, temple is divine presence unto salvation. Um, If covenant is the basis of assurance by grace through faith alone in Christ, our covenant executor, in other words, that's that's what it is. If you don't get the forensic or legal covenantal aspects, you lose your assurance. That was what the that's what the Reformation was all about in justification by grace through faith alone. Is the forensic, propitiatory, you know, substitutionary atonement sacrifice of Christ with that idea of righteousness now being defined legally by virtue of imputation. Now, we believe in subjective righteousness too. But that's not the basis of our assurance. The conference of grace enabling me to become alive in certain ways that makes me more sanctified is a very important thing. And the temple becomes the focus of that as well. 
as well as bringing us to, to, to justification. If covenant is objectifying personal grace, the basis of our assurance, temple is subjectifying in communal grace, the basis for our participation in that assurance. Um, neither save us, but are the means through which God saves us by the Holy Spirit as to bring the salvation to our existence on earth as it is in heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or it could be said that the covenant justifies us, but it could also be said that the temple converts us. Now that's a big statement because right now there's a big confusion going on uh, as people are awakening to a more high church uh, spirituality, thankfully. They are beginning to confuse justification and what we call effectual calling. And I, my, that would be my critique to some of what some of you know is called the Auburn community, which I don't even know if they call themselves that anymore. But there's this idea, and by the way, this really gets into the issue of, of communicant membership and baptism and all this stuff. I'm going to say on the one hand that, that sure, uh, there is a justif- that, that, that justifying grace is, is that which is gained by understanding and receiving the, 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 the message, if you will, of the gospel. That's a high, in other words, it's a high, covenant gets you your high gospel side. That's the whole idea of it. It's, it's objective. It's not moralism, as in examining me subjectively in order to gain assurance. It's the basis of assurance. It's the basis of what we call high gospel Christianity. All the stuff you're going to be reading from Keller next time. He is so Lutheran-esque high gospel. And it's good stuff. That's why I'm going to have you read it. And, and that's really his trademark. I think everybody knows him as sort of the, the guy that's really brought into our vernacular a much more gospel-centered way of understanding Christianity, especially Keller insofar as he comes out of Christendom. And he was that first voice in some way. But, um, but you know, there's another side of, of our, our communion and our tradition that's much more high church, that wants to see much more... Um, about the nature of our salvation that does is temple oriented. And I, I see Keller move in that direction as well, by the way. But and, and I'm moving around too, we're all doing it. But uh, the point being is that um what was I saying here? Yeah, the, 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 there, we still believe in conversion. That's what I was trying to say. That that part of what we are is we still believe in conversion. That means that there is a subjective element that has to respect, and it's clearly made it manifest in, in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, that, that you can improperly partake of the Lord's Supper, and then it gets into, okay, then tell me what that would be, and we do a study on it, and you can see what it is, but it just does, it, it's more. In our confession, faith is not just assenting to a catechetical truth, catechized truth. That's, I mean, most of our kids hopefully can do that at pretty young ages, I pray, if we're catechizing them. But the question is, have they yet partake, have they received it, and, and are they participating in it? And, and you know, there's no age, there's none of that stuff. The point being is you're looking for the means of grace where these things are going to become subjectivized, is another word to put it, where they are actually able themselves to discern, and that's a huge word, the sacrificial atonement of Christ as applied to their sin. And that means you have to have some knowledge of yourself, not just the scenting of a doctrine, and then some knowledge of Christ and what was accomplished there, and it's a mystery. Conversion, we're told in the Gospels very clearly, being born again is a mystery. He said it very clearly, you've got to be born again, that's conversion of spirituality, but the Holy Spirit comes and goes, and you just only see it when it's basically by the effects, i.e. the subjectivity. 
So there's the tension that, that the session deals with all the time. Is there is a subjective element and there's an objective element. And they both have to come together. And giving, of course, the bias and the benefit of the doubt to the person who's coming. Uh, we, we, we take them at their word, in other words. We don't try to you know, read between the lines or something like that. Um, so that's that's that. I'm gonna um, I want to zip through this. I have about 15 minutes, but let me just ask if there's something you need to kind of okay, Preston. Whoa, help me out here. This is really deep stuff, though. Don't feel frustrated. If you're going like my head's blowing. I would say what you just got. I mean, you can ask him. I don't I think we just went as far as we do in any seminary course, if not more. And I think you guys are better equipped than most of our seminaries, honestly, because you've been partaking. You've been partaking of it. So I guess I have a very high view of you. I hope that's all right. It might be helpful to look the other handout that has some tables. Yeah. It might be helpful to look at those tables on your own as well. To sort of get the picture. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even see that. Where? Uh, it starts on page two of the handout that's the Shepherd Leader Training Institute 2015. Oh. It's got the know about that. questions. It starts out with sort of categories of questions. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did you do this, Craig? Yeah. Okay. It's trying to get that big picture view and seeing how everything fits together. A lot of that pressing has gone through. But I found the tables helpful. When I'm talking with the interns, uh, this helps them put all the marks work together. Yeah, this is good. I like it. Yeah. We haven't talked about the prophet, priest, and king only because I think that that was made so obvious by the uh, reading. Well, let me, um, any other thoughts or questions? Well, I guess you're, you'd say the call is gospel-centered is more the objective than the... If you look at that, yeah, there it is. What does it mean to have full assurance of salvation and identity in Christ? That's going to turn you to the covenant of grace. I could add some other questions there. What does it mean to worship God? We're going to go to the covenant of grace, which preserves the grace in the service. Um, everything, though, don't think of law as, or covenant, if you will, as legalism. Quite the contrary. If you understand the covenant, it's it's a marriage covenant. And I talk about that in this thing you got. It's really used as a marriage covenant between God and humanity. And the intent is to preserve grace. And to get you to grace, even if to do that, it's going to convict you of sins in order that you might be saved. So it's a very positive thing. Don't think of covenant or law as bad. It's a rule of faith and practice to preserve grace. So you've got the covenant of grace there. Would you would you mind just popping that every time I ask you to? So I'm trying to watch this and do that. But don't do it yet. So then you've got the temple presence. What does it mean to participate in the full gospel vis-a-vis a temple context of presence under Christ? You know, that was one of the other quotes by uh, Torrance that I love. The, the church of Christ vis-a-vis history was one of his quotes. And it's, it's really powerful if you think about that. And um, so if you think about it, mono-elemental. There's no multiple forms of, of belief. Mono-elemental. Um, objective rules of faith and practice. Legal. That is grace imputed and regulated. It's an imputational righteousness. Not a subjective righteousness. Um, and then a global. This is stuff that, this is for every, you know, there's only one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one, you know, etc. Um, that's what they're talking about. Okay? But then you have the temple. What does it mean to participate in all of this? 
uh, a context of presence under Christ's ascended ministry. Um, and that's when I use the word missional. And again, I said that at the very beginning. When I say the missional church, I mean the church that conceives of itself as being the very real and life-giving presence of Jesus Christ. I put some great quotes in there from church history, Torrance, you know, you've seen some before, Calvin, uh, about that. I have a great quote in here for the gospel centeredness from Calvin, by the way, when you go back. It's really a very powerful quote. I hope you, you enjoy it. So go back to the next one. So, um, and then of course we have the three vocational trajectories. I haven't taken the time to show you that biblically. Um, I could, but we won't do it. Go to the next one. Now, can you see this? I don't know if you need to turn the lights off, but um, what I'm going to do here, there's two little things I want to show you, and I think it's helpful to really think about it now. As you think about um, paradigms and spirituality, then historical paradigms, um, you begin to see this low church, high church, this is called a potter's box, and you begin to see how different traditions historically have tended to gravitate towards different angles. And so if you think of liberal spirituality, and these are all generalizations, generations are all generalizations are wrong if you're trying to go too deep with it. But, you know, they tend to be very communal oriented. You know, there's a lot of loving one another conversations in, in classic liberalism. Um, low church, low gospel. Um, if you go to modern evangelical spirituality, low church, high gospel. And they were very focused on the prophetic, the proclamation, ban Bible, where was sacrament, where was all that other stuff. I'm talking about classic evangelicalism. This has really changed a lot since recently. So that's kind of what you'd think of as a low church, high gospel. And then you had sacerdotal spirituality, which was more the sacramental oriented, to the point of sacerdotal, of course. And that's high church, low gospel. See, they lost the covenantal, you know, justification by grace through faith alone idea. So, and then you have what we want to be, total Christ, which is high gospel, high church. We want it all. We want to say, man, I want to be what I got in my parachurch ministry in terms of a gospel-centered proclamation, which is what I got at least. I don't know if you did, if you had that experience. But I had a very low view of the church. Very individualistic spirituality. And so we want it all. We want the classical, you know, I say classical evangelical because I'm trying to go back to what I think you know, the Calvins and the Luthers were espousing. Um, which would have all three of the, of the, profe- of the uh, Christological vocations manifest in the life of the temple church. Go to the next one. I just kind of play around with this a little bit. And so I try to compare. You know, if it's a high gospel of church, very individualistic, with a stress on personal conversion and individual ethics and piety, the majority of evangelical churches that are, are, you know, are typically pragmatic, memorialist, Understanding of worship um, versus sacramental, where there is a non-efficacious understanding of sacraments vis-a-vis real presence, tends to vacillate towards revivalist worship, ban in Bible, non-denominational or Baptist, the so-called parachurch church, low view of membership, tends to be very moralistic. You see, you see that very big about the gospel. My good friend, roommate, is down in Texas, and this is him. I mean, this describes him to a T. Bob Christopher's his name. Um, he's on a big radio show down there and does all this stuff. Next, now you go to low gospel, high church. Of course, the spirituality is the opposite. It tends to lose the individual in conversion. Now, by the way, I see these tensions playing out the PCA right now with this very... Remember, I started the whole thing with there's a big flux. 
And even within the PCA, there's, an, there's a reaction against the pietism and individualism, and the pendulum swing has really become neo-Catholics under a Presbyterian garb. And um, you can see that here. And the gospel is synonymous with church ritual. Just grow up in a church, participate in the word and sacraments, you're a Christian. And thus community membership begins to get very, you know, young. If not, it, it paid up baptism. But Preston, the difference is those PCA churches still spend a lot of time on the Bible, theology, and so forth. It just there, there doesn't seem to be a movement well, of conversion. There could be that they could be bringing two together. You're right. But the point I'm, I'm that's the PCA expression. But I, again, this is generalization. There's all kinds of nuances. Um, but historically described as sacerdotal, the spirituality will see the ministry of the church is efficacious without qualification of baptismal regeneration, absolution, etc. One can be committed participant in the church but have little personal experience with the transforming power of the gospel. Various types of churches could fit in this description, Catholic, Eastern, Western, etc. Uh, tends to be very ritualistic. Um, you know, again, a PCA version of that would add, just add a high view of preaching and teaching, and you'd be there if that's what if we had that angle in our tradition. By the way, every tradition has every one of these. You you got, you got to keep your minds kind of loose here. I mean, every every denomination I would say probably has an element that vacillates in one of these areas. You know, and depending where you go to that church. Um, next. And this is really meant just to be healthy. Um, sometimes described as either Christian nominalism or perhaps Christian socialism and is often associated with liberalism, spiritually after communal focused even to the point where salvation is mostly described in terms of social justice, human reconciliation, that's what I mean by communal, somewhat anti-supernatural vision for scripture, salvation, history, etc. The gospel tends to be accomplished vis-a-vis politics, education versus church, planning, and evangelism. It tends to be very moralistic, albeit in terms of social morals. And then, of course, next, high, high, I hope, seeks to integrate all five dynamics as it will emphasize both an individual and corporate conversion. Notice corporate conversion. We believe in corporate conversion. I believe your children are Christians awaiting that confirmation of subjective experience. To the extent, not that they are, I don't mean by that moralism, subjective experience that says, hey, I'm really good now. That's the problem. I think a lot of times that gets confusing, and we never talk about that. But what I do mean is their subjective experience of their sin in a manner that they can truly discern the body of Christ for them. That's all. Um, and that's the difference. Uh, repent, it will emphasize both word and deed, gospel of restoration. It will basically, hopefully, close to what we're trying to do here, though I'm sure unsuccessfully at some levels. Um, go next. And now... Use the Potter box on the issue. That was on the issue of spirituality and praxis. This is on the issue of now. How would we go about doing ecumenism? Well, okay. Let's let's look at the low church view of ecumenism, mm-hmm. and that's where the word became a bad word for all those of us who were evangelicals. It meant they were so low. They were so low gospel that we lost the gospel. They lost the covenant. And by gospel, now I don't mean just that little line saved by grace through faith alone. I mean the good news of all of the rule of faith and practice as it gives us life and flourishing. So our doctrines. Uh, Low church, high gospel. Interestingly enough, and I did a a paper on this for a doctoral uh, seminar that I had to do, and it was very interesting. If you think about it, you know, when I was in uh, Aberdeen studying this stuff, um, everyone there, most of them were either Scottish or American uh, uh, mainlines, and um, they all just concluded that evangelicals had no tradition of ecumenism. 
And so I was kind of the lone one. One other guy was kind of there. And I said, no, you, you, have you ever heard of Lusam? Have you ever heard of, you know, and I went through it. I said, no, but, but it's a different kind of ecumenism. It doesn't fit. In some ways, the, the, the WCC was more confessional. They were actually trying to build ecumenism based on doctrines of, of order and the three big ones. I can't remember now, ministry order or something like that. Um, what do we do? What did evangelicals do? What did I do when I was in, in my parachurch organization? Well, we're all one based on sharing a philosophy of ministry or pragmatic. Missions, basically. We all agreed, let's go do missions. And we have mission conferences. And that's an ecumenical conference. Many different traditions come together, but the tendency was pragmatic, which means, oh, our doctrines don't matter that much, our ecclesiology doesn't matter that much. So the irony, by the way, when do you start partaking of communion together? Well, WCC said, when we can all believe together. Evangelicals said, look, we all, we all share Christ spiritually, so we can, we'll do communion as a first thing towards becoming one. <laughs> and we, we, as long as we're all in, in doing, in pragmatically on the same page as doing missions together. And then you had the imperial, which was the, the Catholic churches, which said, you either adopt our elements and forms, more or less, is what we would, our, that's what Luther would basically, how his argument went, or you just judge me as outside of the Church of Jesus Christ. Quite a lot of fear in that. And then you have the high church, high gospel, and classic uh, evangelical, I'm going to call it. And that's what I'm calling a multi-traditional, multi-form, missional church. Go to the next page. So, Preston, our participation to the point and where this is point. the Pope would have been a pragmatic approach to... You say that again? So the conversation earlier about bridges of hope, it sounded like it was a pragmatic approach to our participation in that, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not an organic union either. We're not organically united. That's why I say we're, we're really an association. We're just associating. And there's a unity. There's, that gets to another big question, uh, actually. Um, are there different types of unity? Uh, Owens, John Owens wrote a masterful volume on this. You know, the interesting thing about the Reformation is they knew that schism was a sin. And I mean the volumes and the volumes and the volumes of words and pages spent on on trying to defend or articulate Christian unity is amazing. I wish we would do such. But we can utilize their help. And he, he came up with five types of unity. And so it gets a little, I didn't present that here, obviously, but I would say there's a kind of unity going on there, but it's not at the organic level. This is, we're dealing with organic unity right here. Um, but yeah, look at this page, and this is the last page, and we're through. Um, for the perfecting of the life of the whole body, the Church of South India, this is, their, this is what happened when they brought many different traditions together and formed one Church of South India which has since gone liberal. <laughs> um, for the perfecting the life of the whole body of the Church of South India uh, needs the heritage of each of the United Churches, and each of those churches will, it is hoped, not lose the continuity of its own life, but preserve that life enriched by the union with itself of, of other two churches. The South, uh, Church of South India is thus formed by a combination of different elements, each bringing its contribution by elements that don't mean the way we're using it. Um, uh, it really means forms there. Um, where uh, elements, uh, each bringing uh, its contribution to the whole and not by absorption of any one by another. It is therefore also a comprehensive church and its members, while firmly holding the fundamentals of the faith, we call elements, 
an order of the church, universal, are allowed with freedom of opinion in all other matters and make freedom of action and such differences of practices are consistent with the general framework of the church as one organized body. That's one expression of an attempt to treat unity seriously, to distinguish what we call elements and forms, and, and have multiple forms of what they hope to be mono-covenantal uh, unity. So you see down there, uh, it's organic and council. It was a council, um, uh, multi-traditional, sacramental, just a jurisdiction versus pragmatic. In other words, you can see them reacting to many of the same quadrants that I shared earlier. That's that's it. I'll open. It. I can't see the thing. How much time do we have? Is we have three minutes. A lot of stuff. I know. So I turn on. As long as and Kevin was talking about this a little earlier at the table, it only works as long as polity can be agreed upon, right? So those three churches in India had agreed upon polity in order for them to sort of allow the differences but one, and it's where you start trying to figure out how you organize the rule that that. that could well, polity is a very big word, and there were aspects of their polity that were judged non-elemental. And there are aspects of their polity that was judged elemental. And, um, for instance, Presbyterian Leslie Newbigin became a bishop. But they had a bishopry that was not um, directly tied to, um, uh, um, you know, ch- chancellor. Um, you know, it's very interesting, though, your question, because if you all know anything about the Anglican movement right now, the Anglican Church of North America and, and the new archbishop, um, he was, he was um, what is the word? I don't want to use the word anointed. I think that's what they might use. But he was ordained, I guess, or, or, or established as the archbishop without uh, the Bishop of Canterbury's. Um, it, it had his blessings, but not his authority. And the way they did that is because other bishops, a majority of other bishops globally, uh, laid hands on him. Most of them from South, you know, region, non-modernistic regions, and um, and so even within their polity, what I'm trying to say is there's an amazing. I cannot, I cannot possibly say strong enough how much unsettling there is, and how much neo-denominationalism is going on right now, and and all these well, why not questions about how we ordain people and how we do this, and there's some good things about that, and there's some bad things about that. You know, um, but so for instance, in this case, though, here's an Archbishop of, of, of North American uh, Anglicanism who does not enjoy the doctrine of hierarchy. That, that in other words, his authority is not hierarchically uh, connected to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but is hierarchically counted to the Council of 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 Anglicans worldwide, which is part of that. That, that, that thing. So what they did is basically made a ever so slight, and man, I can't, I just love rubbing this in his, his little doll, but ever slight movement towards Presbyterianism. <laughs> because they recognize a council's authority, in this case, as, as, pre, as, as preeminent over a, an individual authority in a particular location. So, so right there, whether they have worked this out or not, I don't know. I give them great credit, maybe they did. But right there, they would agree with Clowney, if you remember Clowney's statement, that, that we hold to a multi-form 
conciliar form of government wherein we now recognize that our head is Christ in heaven and when a consensus of the world, global uh, underheads agree, then there is unity of faith and practice. You see that? What That's a phenomenal thing that just happened. Phenomenal from my point of view. And I could imagine, probably you guys, some guys like this are going in, these guys... Probably after my life, but but somewhere down the line, I could so imagine the and that's that was a South Indian model, by the way. They basically did the same thing. That just happened with the Anglican Church here. In fact, it could have been inspired by because Leslie knew because I know a big fan or big guy for them. Um, I could so see that starting to happen uh, in in a kind of neo denominational realignment. But we're going to need people like what you just did today. What scares the Bahijis out of me? Is that a lot of this is going to stuff is going to happen, and there's going to be so very little genuine biblical framework from which to do it. The kind of stuff that you guys are learning right here, you know, that that can help you make these distinctions. It's going to help this happen in a way that we just don't become another pendulum swing and another compromising kind of a of a, of a communion. That was a big question, buddy. <laughs> maybe I made it bigger than I should have, but um, that's possible. Maybe little. Other questions? Yeah, maybe one more minute. It just this is just strikes me so sad. If we lose sight of Christ and his temple presence and him being ahead, it's it's so But that's not what they did. Well you thought South India now is gonna Oh well this is I don't know, 50, 60 something years. And oh well, it does sometimes happen. I think it, I think there's some reasons for that, and I'm not sure. And when I say that, I don't know that the whole church is that way. I just I probably shouldn't have said it. I've heard rumors that it's that way, but but the point. But yeah, you're, to your point though, Peggy, it is sad because there is no. I don't think there is one form of denomination that will that is from apostles to now still in existence. Orthodox way. I mean, the PCA is a form of Presbyterianism, which is a form of reform, which is a reform of monastic, uh, a certain branch of monastic Catholicism, which is a form of, you see, we're just going back and back and back. And that's why I say to this, these guys, by the way, you can tell your friends who are going Catholic, well, why did you choose that, that branch of Catholicism? There was a monastic branch that inspired Luther and Calvin too, you know, and, and, and off we go. Yeah. Just one comment with the Potter's box and with like the five marks. Uh, I find it helpful not to think of it as we are just more well balanced. Like we just do a good job of holding sacramental, communal, and confessional together. It's actually that, uh, I mean, this may sound arrogant, but we're getting the sacraments better than the quote sacramental church because when it gets regulated by a gospel centered covenant, you're actually getting what the sacrament was fully meant to be. Does that make sense? So it's not like there's the sacramental church and then we sort of have a third of that. Right? right. So the high church low gospel yeah. is, is going to be not even really appreciating the sacraments for all the day. Right. So the, the, the covenant is temple by nature. The temple is covenant by nature. The prophet, priest, and king are intercurrent. Yeah. And the thing I would also say, related to what you said, it is I appreciate what you said. I know this is what you mean, too. Is We aren't a five-mark church here, either, in any kind of fallible, infallible way. We are very much struggling to be one. It's what we aspire to be. And so let's just let's speak of that in ideal terms, that this ideal church, which no church on earth is yet a, a 
achieved. We will see this ideal in heaven, presumably, not presumably, with our hope and faith. Um, but yeah, that's what we're striving for. That's all. We're aspiring this. And I do think we always got to be careful for, we can become very self-righteous, five mark, total Christ. Total Christ becomes our self-righteousness. And that would be very bad. It, even, remember, we have to repent, that phrase we used to talk, you know, repent of your righteousness, i.e. that we began to have a false hope in our experience of a certain area of righteousness. And if this is right, then we repent of our righteousness to get our identity by the virtue of us being able to do it. I do have to say that given that title there, my wife certainly appreciates it. <laughs> oh, look at there. Total Christian. Would you close? Yeah. Father, uh, we are so thankful that um, you have put so many people who have thought uh, really deeply about uh, about the trajectories that you've laid out for thousands of years, going back to the first uh, interactions you've had with humanity, mm-hmm. and knowing that you have uh, condescended so much mm-hmm. to um, to list the way that we can understand it and hear it and experience it, to know that um, there's still so much to learn from those you've been uh, speaking through and acting in uh, in other parts of the world and um, throughout time. And uh, just uh, for us not to be overwhelmed by all that, but to be joyful and excited and and encouraged Mm -hmm. to interact with uh, other Christians and and to bring what we've learned and to learn more and to to overall uh, continue on this um, this, uh, great privilege to be your people. I pray that through it all, um, as you are taking the people in this room and leading them into leadership roles and... uh, fashioning them into those who uh, may uh, be leaders here in this church, that you will um, prepare them in a way to, um, to soak in this and to, um, to lead others and to, uh, to care for your flock, knowing that, um, that you are present uh, and working through us. Mm-hmm. Bless us now as we um, ruminate on these things and we keep them in our minds as they, they uh, continue the conversation and uh, just bless us as we prepare to worship you tomorrow. In Jesus' name. Amen. So your readings next time you want to get started because they're about five chapters. They're, they're shorter chapters, but they're about five, I think. Tim Keller's Center Church, excellent book on being a gospel-centered church, but he really does a good job with it. And um, and uh, you don't have to read the other thing. I said something about the article that, that I'd written for Mission Out of Vano. Um, it's more empowerment, and we could talk about that later, so don't read that. Did just you know, just Keller. Ideas. You didn't say about ideas for sort of, um, maybe like a future session. We talked about which you were thinking we talked about. Oh, yes. Thank you. I tell you what. Could you all do me a favor? You could do it now if you want, but if you could... Um, as you lay kick of the five marks, and don't worry about whether it's exactly, I mean, you may say something else, put it in another mark. But if there are issues that you feel that, that we need to engage for the sake of being leaders here, uh, controversies that are going on out there, uh, practical issues of ministry that you think we need to talk about, um, please email me, uh, tell me. Email me probably the best thing you could do because that way I don't lose it in my head. <laughs> but I would really want to know that. And I really need to know it now because I'm beginning to plan out the rest of the course. <laughs>